Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, October 23rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. We did the Lord's work last week. We set aside Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We did the God of Abraham's work, right, Josh? That's last right. Last week um, by uh, setting aside three days of um, what, what political discourse in favor of helping children or helping a hospital care for children. There you go. Helping a hospital care for children. I don't know that we necessarily need to be caring for children. I think if any three of us were um, suspected of caring for children, children would probably be rushed somewhere else where they know how to care uh, for children. (laughs) Maybe it's an indirect way of caring for children. We did the best we knew how to be a part of of raising money for the Children's Miracle Network. want to begin this morning by thanking each and every you for not only being patient in regards to your political fix, but many of you stepped up and made contributions. I think we shattered. Yeah, there you go. We We shattered our all-time record. We raised a little better than $144,000, Um, So says the Royal Rev of Radio. Um, Me being the dummy that I am, when he sends me this total Friday afternoon, I said, (laughs) is that good? And it is. It's because I don't know, don't have yeah. any idea yeah. what we're measured against and what our expectations were. Well, but, you um, you always want to do better than last year, and last year's total was one hundred twenty thousand and fifty four dollars. So, roughly almost twenty five thousand more dollars. That's excellent. That is excellent. So, thank you, um, thank you for not only bearing with us as we did something a little bit different than we normally do, but thank you to anybody out there listening to my voice that chose to be a part of making a contribution uh, to the Children's Miracle Network. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and then, I mean, you, you're feeling good about yourself, right? I mean, you're feeling good about the world. Um, you're surrounded Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. and Friday by genuine and sincere people trying to make the world a better place instead of Josh and Rev, you know, trying to drive a political agenda down somebody's throat whether they want it or not. Right. Um, and then you turn on your television <laughs> And you got to watch your 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 you know Revs Gamecocks play football. I knew, and, um, I knew you were going. There not next. such a pretty sight. Nope. Not such a a pretty sight. And then um, you stay up late enough. I mean, I looked at my watch at eleven thirty, and I said, "Who do I think I am staying up at eleven thirty at night?" But I'm hoping and praying that the Hurricanes can figure out a way to uh, upset Clemson, which may not have been that big an upset. Um, I mean, I've got theories on both. Um, I don't know if I'm right or not. don't have any idea if I'm right, but I've got a radio show. Well, I saw um, your rant on Facebook and actually an article that uh, Fitz News picked up and ran as a guest column uh, over the weekend as well. So I I read your rant, so I know you have some very specific feelings about where Gamecock Athletics is. Let's start with Clemson. And and Clemson fans, tell me if I'm right or wrong here. I'm going to make a, a distant observation. You ready? This is what I've observed. It looks to me the team really misses Brent Venables. I'm not talking about schematics. I'm not talking about design blitzes. I'm I'm talking about it seems to me the intensity of Venables was was kind of a um I don't know rev a uh, a marker of the team. I mean it was that they were I mean when Venables was on that sideline it was fire breathing football, and and the and the and the team kind of reflected Venables once again. I mean I think Venables is an elite coordinator. I mean I think you know the day Dabo Sweeney hired Brent Venables away from Oklahoma was a good day for Clemson football, bad day for Gamecock football. Um, but, 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 you know, you had to believe sooner or later, one of the elite assistant coaches in America is going to be intrigued by an offer 
the Sooners come a calling. Um, I mean, that's one of the blue bloods. I mean, Oklahoma football is a blue blood program. Nobody, I don't think, at Clemson blames him for leaving. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you, you wish him well, but you kind of don't wish him well. You wish he'd stay where he is. But but it looks to me the Clemson team, and I'm talking about, I'm not just talking about blitz schemes and, you know, when you stun a lineman. I'm talking about the intensity that he brought to the table every day just seems to be a bit lacking. The, the other question I'll pose to Clemson uh, Nation, and I don't know the answer to this, is Dabo Sweeney, Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick oh. was not a great coach until he bumped into a great quarterback. And then he became a great coach. I mean, Bill Belichick's record while not coaching Tom Brady ain't that impressive. Bill Belichick coaching a team with Tom Brady as their quarterback is about as impressive as any coach in the history of the National Football League. So, I mean, as you know, Sweeney had kind of Brady times two. I mean, he had two generate. There's a reason it's called generational talent. It don't happen a lot. And Dabo figured out a way to lure generational quarterback play. And almost, I think, uh, there was a little break there. Um, there was a quarterback between the two for a year or so. But the majority of that run that Clemson had was with two all-time great college quarterbacks, Deshaun Watson and uh, and Trevor Lawrence. And those two, who's better? I don't know. They were both really, really good. I mean, they were both exceptional. They were the Tom Brady's of college football. So, so you know, Belichick is struggling. I mean, he wins yesterday against Buffalo in an upset. But you know the record. You know Belichick's record with Brady, Belichick's record without Brady. Um Look at look at Dabo. Dabo's record with those two guys is, and I and I I'll say this, Rev. I think my record with those two guys would have been okay. <laughs> I think your record with right. those two guys would have been would have been okay. Yeah. It's a little bit like Bobby Cox coaching Maddox, Bolts, and Glavin in the prime of their career. Okay, what what do I do? Get out of the way. Yeah. Just kind of stay out of the way. And let those two guys It'll cover a lot of mistakes yeah, as a coach. Right? And, and I don't know that I'm right there, but that that's that's a couple of observations and questions I have for Clemson. Here's Clemson's issue. You ready? And I saw this yesterday. Uh, some Tiger fan posted it, and I thought it was a good analogy. If you've never gone snow skiing anywhere but Boone, Boone's pretty nice. But if you go from Boone to Snowshoe, all of a sudden you don't want to go back to Boone. If you go to, if you leave Snowshoe and go to Vail or Aspen, you're like, damn, uh, I don't want to go back to Snowshoe. You know, what, what is a flight out to Colorado? You know, you just start thinking about it. If you ever go to Switzerland, and, and ski one mountain for a day, one runs a day. You, you, you see where I'm headed? Yep. They've been to the promised land. I mean, they've skied the Alps. I mean, they, they've been to the highest mountains. They've been on the greatest terrain. They have skied on the world-class and most pristine slopes in the world. And they don't want to go back to Vail or Aspen. They, they certainly don't want to go back to Snowshoe. And they forgot all about what it feels like to ski. Uh, uh, you know, a Sugar Mountain or Beach Mountain in Boone, North Carolina. No slight to Boone. Um, Josh, you know where I'm headed here. No, I get you. And I, and I think the fan base of Clemson has been to Austria. I mean, have been to Switzerland. They've been to the greatest, you know, snow runs in the world. And all of a sudden, they're kind of sort of back at Snowshoe. Uh, but they're not back at Boone. We're at Boone. Um, <laughs> the, the, the Gamecocks, you know, we know what Snowshoe's like. And when HBC was here, we kind of tasted Vail and Aspen. We've never been to Switzerland. We don't know what it's like on the top of the mountain, right? <laughs> Great analogy. But I mean, when, when Spurrier was here, we kind of we had a yeah. taste of. Yeah. Oh man, that, those Rocky Mountains. I mean, that that's a little <laughs> bit different. I want more of that. I want a lot more of that. 
And um, and I just think Clemson has to kind of um just realize that they had one of the greatest runs any college football program has ever had. I'm not saying it's over for Clemson. I'm not suggesting that for a second. But it seems to me that there's some missing parts and, and, and a couple of things. Well, not more than a couple, maybe three or four things that just aren't there, that were there when they were elite. Um, they're still better than the Gamecocks. I mean, there's still a couple of touchdowns probably better than South Carolina. But, you know, in Columbia, anything can happen. You saw that last year in, uh, in, in Clemson. But, um, I mean, that, that's kind of my observation on the Tigers. Now, here, here's my deal with the Gamecocks, and I did. I mean, I posted something. I don't think it was highly critical. I mean, I think it was very blunt, very abrupt, very matter-of-fact, but I'm not apologizing for that anymore. In, in, in my diatribe, I basically said Gamecock Nation has to stop accepting mediocrity, not just accepting it, funding it at a high level. I mean, the Gamecock fan base is probably guilty of funding mediocrity at a level nobody ever has. Why? I mean, it, I made a reference. I, I kind of said something. Your, our, our buddy Will Folks from Fitz News called me yesterday or texted me and said, you mind if I publish this? I mean, I don't mind. And he said, ha-ha, trained like circus animals. Because <laughs> he's a Gamecock, uh, you know, he's a graduate of the University yeah. of South Carolina. And Folks said, um, I just think that's so, we, we, you know, Gamecock Nation has been trained like a circus animal to support mediocrity and, and kind of accept it. Well, that's just poor old South Carolina. You know, it's just a little old South Carolina. You know how it is in that big, bad SEC. I mean, you know, and, and it's almost like there's this sense of this kind of a badge of courage that we morons who wear Gamecocks on our shirt wear in, in our continued loyal support of mediocrity. Mediocrity doesn't deserve loyal support. Period. It just does not. I mean, there, there comes a point in time in our loyal is Loyalty is a great virtue, Josh. It is an unbelievable virtue. I have tried my best to be a loyal friend. When I have a friend in my world, and I'm at the age now where things happen, unexpected things happen in business and family and, and profound. I mean, so so I, I try to always be there for my friends. Clemson or Carolina, it doesn't matter to me when it comes to, to that. But, but, but in college football, Clemson fans have a reason to be loyal. They have been rewarded. They have won championships. They've been highly, highly competitive. The Gamecock fan base has been trained like circus animals to be loyal to mediocrity. And I think you got to stop that. You got to cha- challenge people who are in charge. Somebody asked me yesterday, took me to task. I said, okay, I mean, you're over the target. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it kind of said it in a, in a humorous and uh, inoffensive way. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to throw your elbows without somebody getting mad. You're throwing your elbows. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Okay. What's your answer? I mean, what, what is the solution? Um, I mean, there's not one silver bullet. I'll tell you the first thing I would do, Rev, because you asked me this morning. Mm-hmm. The first thing I would do is term limit trustees. Mm, but that's your buddies. Right. It is. It is. I mean, I had multiple conversations. You ready? I'll be an insider for a second. Okay. I had multiple conversations yesterday with trustees about my article. Hey, man. <laughs> did you hear from your you're buddies? Talk, you're, you're talking about me? <laughs> I'm not talking about anybody in particular. And as I said in my in my in my rant, who cares what I'm talking about? I'm a gnat on a buffalo's butt when it comes to the grand scheme of things. I mean, I know a few people that I can fuss and complain to, but I don't move the meter. I mean, I don't go to work every day at uh, you know, at Gamecock Park and Gamecock Nation, and I mean, I don't do that. Don't go to Clemson. I mean, they've got you know people in charge of those programs, and they were paid a lot of money to make good decisions. They got trustees, and you've got a college president, athletics directors, and 
and kind of internals of a of an athletics office. I don't know how they work. Uh, I know one works better than the other. I don't know why, but I know one works better than the other. I know one university is bigger with a bigger budget. They were the second university to build an indoor practice facility. They were the second university to build a football operations building. You tell me who's committed and who's not. But but I would I would term limit trustees. You ready? Jay and, and Philip and Mike may not like this. I would allow the alumnus to vote on a person. I'd have public election of trustees where people who've graduated from the university would get a proxy vote. I mean, not a proxy vote. We would have a um, a tabulation, and you would you would be mailed a ballot. And if you're a graduate of USC, you get to vote on you know uh, four trustees. I'd come up with some reason uh, or some you know. I don't think the the, the alumni should vote on every trustee. I would let the General Assembly and the governor do some of that. But I would let, um, you would not have to be a graduate. I think sometimes you work at the paper mill so long you forget it stinks. And I wouldn't have everybody, you know, that loyal. In other words, I, I remember my dad went here in 77 and I went here in, in 2001. Screw that. I mean, you know, if you're going to be a trustee and, and part of your job is overseeing the athletics department, are, are they performing or not? Are they meeting the mark or not? Are they exceeding expectations or not? So I would term limit trustees. I would have public election of trustees. It is the flagship university. It is publicly funded. I would have um, public elections that, that only graduates of USC could participate in. Um, I would probably have the governor more influential in appointing and removing um, trustees. I would come up with a point system. You ready? This, that was the political world. Here's the non-political. And I think Clemson needs to consider this. I'm giving you good advice, Tigers. I normally don't do that. You ready? Here's what's got to happen. You got to get a law changed in South Carolina that every dollar of contribution you make to the NIL counts as if you made a dollar contribution to the Gamecock Club or IPTEC. Mm. That's got to happen today. You know the biggest difference in Missouri and South Carolina? NIL, period. The single biggest difference in comparing those two teams, one to another, one had money to pay players in the NIL, the other did not. Well, the other had some money, but they had to play one kid probably more than they should have. 843-661-0937. I think he's trying to get your attention because oh. I've been working uh, the way it is. I knew we had to take a break here. We want to come back. I mean, is something amiss with our um, equipment and machine? Are we taking a break or not, guys? Okay. Red's giving me the one-minute sign. We're back in the saddle, and things aren't working as um, as they should have. The, the other thing I would do is I would have a football chief executive officer. I would find somebody um, inside the uh, – probably wouldn't be inside the football program today, somebody outside of the program. I would hire them, and, and you could call them director of football operations, football chief executive officer, uh, football liaison to the athletics department, um, you know, special assistant to the president on behalf of college football. I don't have any idea what well, you call it, whatever you'd like to call it, but find you a full of fire and brim, just a go getter. And I, I want to, I want to hear the point you made that I thought was very interesting too, in, in your rant about Missouri coming to the sec a lot more recently than, than South Carolina has. Hold on to that. We'll be back in just a second. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Um, not such a great Monday. If you're a fan of the Gamecocks and Tigers, I've tried to give an analogy, but I think the I think the the ski slope analogy. I'd love to say it's mine. I, I mean, I dressed it up a bit there, but somebody made that point 
yesterday on one of the, uh, I don't know, one of the Clemson sites because I knew how frustrated they were. I mean, they've had two football games that you feel like you outplayed uh, both teams in Florida. Uh, Florida State, Clemson did outplay Florida State. No question about it. Loses in overtime. Uh, I don't want to say if they outplayed Miami or not. They let Miami hang around. I mean, they did. They let Miami hang around. And I'll say this. I mean, this would be a day I could turn it into a sports show. The, the, the club Nick kid at Clemson reminds me of Steven Garcia. I, I don't know why. He's got a lot of talent. <laughs> he gets a little out of control at times. And he plays dumb at times. I mean, he really does. I mean, Garcia was a, was a talented guy. But, but he kind of got in his own way at times. Clubbed it looks to me to be a little bit like that. Now, once again, I'm not a Clemson fan, so I don't dig into the program. I mean, I don't know the throws he can make and the throws he can't make and the reads he does well and the reads he has trouble with. I mean, I think I have a pretty good idea. With, but he reminds me a lot of Steven Garcia. Came in with a lot of accolades. I don't want to say a loose cannon. I think that's unfair. Well, it ain't unfair with Garcia. He was a loose cannon. But I just think they play a little bit alike. They'll do things, and you go like, wow, that's why we want him on our team. And then they'll do another thing or two or three, and they're like, what was he thinking when he did that? I mean, what's up with, <laughs> with his yeah, Going rogue is great as long well, I mean, as it works. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, Garcia went rogue, yeah. uh, you know, at times. Somebody especially off the field. Um, anyway, that's just <laughs> – it just kind of – they kind of remind me uh, one of another when it comes to the inconsistencies of which uh, they go about the game. You asked me a second ago – to, to, to explain, from my perspective, uh, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Missouri comes into the SEC in 2012. The Gamecocks in 92. So the Gamecocks had a 20-year a head start over Missouri for getting toughened up. You know, I mean, this is the big, bad SEC, and you don't know what lies ahead. It'll take you, you know, 10 years to toughen up enough to compete on equal footing. Well, it didn't seem to bother Missouri much. Um, and I, I just think there's a um, – I, I just believe that business – Football is a business today, and you've got to run it like a business enterprise. And you got to look for competitive advantages, and and where are your disadvantages, and what are the issues, and and the problems. Uh, Missouri, I think Missouri's biggest problem is the prominence of their football program in relation to where they are. Um, they're in Missouri. Newsflash: the University of Missouri in Missouri, but they have Kansas City and St. Louis, big pro sports. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Kansas City Royals the St. Louis Cardinals. I mean, th those are historic and legendary, um, you know, sports franchises, and they kind of take a back seat to that. Clemson and South Carolina don't have to do that. I mean, I, you could probably argue, and I don't know how to do it, see, see a metric on this, what number, what amount of money has the Panthers taken away from Clemson and South Carolina athletics? I mean, I'm sure it's a number, but it's not the Chiefs, the, the Royals, the, the Cardinals, I mean, if you're a family in Missouri and you've got X number of dollars to have fun with in sports, you got tickets to the Cardinals, the Chiefs, or the Missouri Tigers. I mean, I understand the, the you know, the graduate loyalty, but but the majority of, of sports in Missouri is about the, the Cardinals and the Chiefs and the Royals. And, and they're, but, but what Missouri did was, well, I mean, recently, I can't speak for, you know, the way they became competitive a lot quicker than South Carolina did. The Gamecocks have been to one SEC championship game since 92. Missouri's been to two since 2012. And they're probably the second best team of the East this year. I mean, they probably are. I mean, I'm convinced of that now. But what Missouri does, they tend to business. They take care of things. I'll say this. 
And I know the people in the Lipte and Gamecock Club don't want me saying this, but I'm saying it anyway. If you're a Clemson fan, you, you better give the NIL. Whatever you I mean, if you don't, I mean, if you got more money and you know what to do with it, it doesn't matter. Give to the Ipte and Gamecock Club and the NIL. But if you're somebody who has to make a strategic decision about where your money best helps Clemson football, where your money best helps Gamecock football, there is no doubt. I mean, it's not even close now. I mean, if you're giving $1,000 to the Gamecock Club or $1,000 to Ipte and $10 to the NIL, you're hindering your program from winning. I mean, once again, I doubt it Taylor, the Gamecock Club sponsor of this radio show, but I don't care. I mean, I'm going to tell it like it is. And there's nothing more important today in college football than NIL. Nothing. I mean, as we say in the country, second ain't close. I mean, it's first and, and foremost by a mile. There, there may be a revisiting of that. Uh, the NCAA hired a former governor who spent a good bit of time in Washington last week talking about NIL, trying to, you know, uh, Nick Saban had a press conference this week, and Saban was asked about recruits who are now wanting $5,000 a visit. I mean, let's say Josh is a five-star wide receiver from Austin, Texas, and Texas wants him, and Alabama wants him, and LSU wants him, and Clemson wants him, and South Carolina wants him. Um, Josh is saying, yeah, I'll take a visit for five grand. And Saban said, I told you guys what was going to happen to college football once we allowed this nonsense to happen. Well, here's my question to Saban. And if I were in the press conference, this is what I asked Nick Saban. I would ask Nick Saban. I'd say, Coach, hypothetically, let's just say hypothetically. I mean, it would never happen, but let's just say hypothetically. Hypothetically, if we decided to pay a college football coach $10 million a year, what should a player get? I mean, if, if this is so bad for the game. He'd if, say, next question. Well, I mean, of course he would. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's terrible when these kids, you know, want money. Mm-hmm. But it, but I don't remember the Saban press conference when he signed his $80 million eight-year contract, do y'all? I mean, a college football coach making $10 million a year, that didn't change the game. It's only when these kids want five grand to come visit your university. That's That's when the game really becomes nasty and contaminated and different. And it is different. But my God, Nick Saban, the gall to say this is the day the game changed forever. But my question would be, what, what do you say about a game, an, an amateur athletic event where the coach makes $10 million and the player gets a scholarship? I mean, what should a player be worth? But here's what Missouri did, Ref, because I'm going to get to your point. Missouri passed a law. I mean, they're, they're AD, and I, I guess their football operations staff got involved in politics, and they went to the state house, and they said, look, we can't compete with LSU, Alabama, Georgia, Florida. I mean, we just can't. Uh, we got the Royals, Chiefs, and and, uh, and Cardinals taking away a lot of our resources. Here's what we want you to do. In this new NIL, we got to be cutting edge. We got to be creative. We got to really find an advantage here. And what they did is they convinced, they, they convinced the Missouri General Assembly to pass a law that allowed a high school senior – who signed with an in-state school to enjoy the benefit of NIL after December during his senior year. If a kid, if a five-star kid in Missouri Hmm. signs with Georgia, he can't benefit. If a kid from Missouri signs in-state, he starts getting his reward in December of his senior year in high school, and they also allow the head football coach to participate in the negotiation. So let's say I work for the Gamecock or Tiger NIL, and I and I go talk to Dave Baker's son, who's a five-star recruit. I mean, I can't sell him like 
the head football coach can. I mean, I can't dot, dot I's and cross T's. So in Missouri, the head coach can participate in some of the NIL discussions when he says, hey, I'm going to turn you into a man. I'm going to make you a better football player. I'm going to offer you a chance to play in the NFL one day, and we're going to put some money in your pocket. And the guy sitting beside me is the guy that's going to help us figure out how much money we got to put in your pocket for you not to go to Georgia, for you not to go to Alabama, for you not to go to Clemson, but rather come uh, to Missouri. They just got real creative and real aggressive in the NIL space. And I'm telling the Gamecocks and Tigers, if you don't get aggressive in the NIL space, there are rough days ahead. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. As I said earlier, I could turn this into a, a sports show because I have a lot on my mind and really got involved <laughs> in some of these um, off-the-record conversations yesterday. And it applies to Clemson and South Carolina both. I mean, I think they both, I don't say drug their feet, but they're not as far down the road as they need to be. Some of it at Clemson was Dabo didn't like it. I mean, he just didn't like this new normal, this new NIL and transfer portal. Dabo's built a program on basically the culture of Clemson, you know, all in, uh, you know, the family. I mean, that, that sales, that really sales until somebody walks by with a handful of money. And then they're like, hey, culture here, handful of money here. I'll take the handful of money here. And what it did, Rev, it legitimized all the payoffs, rip-offs of the deals nobody saw, as Glenn <laughs> Fry famously said. All the underhanded dealings at some of these programs is now on the table, and everybody participates. And we know, um, in the South in particular, the African-American church has historically been the place to take care, quote-unquote, of kids, um, you know, the football coach or, or the big donor at Alabama or Auburn go to the go to the pastor and say, you know, I hear you got a family in need in your church. Well, I don't think I do. Well, I mean, we've heard you do. It's the mother and father of that 6'2", 225-pound um, kid that runs like the wind. It's just amazing how many families in, in need always have a kid, you know, 6'5", 250 <laughs> pounds, and can run uh, like the wind. It's never a 5'10", volleyball player you know that that um that that is a family in distress but but i said something that got your attention a second ago about the contributions yeah that you made you're a gamecock club member yes yeah, sure, sure uh but but you were saying and i think what you're saying is that mo- if you're w- interested in helping your team win money spent to the gamecock club or ipte is not necessarily the most efficient money spent it's not even close is that what you're saying I mean, it's not even okay. close um, when, when you give money to the Gamecock Club, it gets involved in bureaucratic tendencies. I mean, the Gamecock Club, I, mean, I, I love the Gamecock Club. I appreciate all they do. I'm sure Ipte's done wonderful and spectacular things for Clemson. But there's a lot of people that have to be employed. I'm not sure how you measure success. It's somewhat of a public university's extension. Um, I just When I think of public universities and fiefdoms within public universities, I don't think about maximizing efficiencies. I just don't. Um, uh, you know, IPTE has a responsibility to the football program, the basketball program, the golf program. Um, you know, all the athletic programs have to kind of be fed out of out of IPTE. Gamecock Club, the same thing. Um, the football money, it's almost like a direct infusion into the progress of the football program by NIL. I think if you give money to the Gamecock Club and give money, I'm not saying stop giving money to either. I'm not, I'm not, that's your call. You make that decision. But if you're a football, what does our good buddy uh, Alan Smothers call it? 
you know, a football bozo or a big head of football, whatever. Anyway, he's got, he's a basketball guy. And he calls us football enthusiasts, bozos or something to that effect. And he, he says it endearingly. I mean, he does. He does. He's not trying to be, um, you know, negative toward us football bozos. But anyway, um, if you're a football bozo and you're a Gamecock fan or a Tiger fan and you're giving money to the Gamecock Club or Riptay, you're not investing directly into your football program. You're directly, you're directly investing into the athletic programs at South Carolina and Clemson. But I think the football bozos, and, and let's admit, I mean, I think even bad boy would admit this, football drive the train. I mean, you got the NCAA basketball tournament, which is a huge revenue generator. But aside from March Madness, I mean, it's not even close. I mean, football is the catalyst to all these athletic programs and why everybody working at a university's athletics department should be interested in how good or not uh, the football team is. Eight four three. So that we'll we'll we'll, we'll pull the blind down on the uh, on the uh, the college football weekend. But I think the Gamecock Missouri game was very symbolic of a team that did not take NIL seriously to begin with, and a university that did. And I, you know, do you blame one single person? Probably unfair. But there are people in charge. And the people at the University of South Carolina who were in charge of making sure the football program wins uh, just did not do as good a job as the people in Missouri did who are in charge of making sure the football team wins. And when you look at the Gamecock football roster today and the Missouri football roster, and that's why I'm beating this dead horse, I mean, it is directly and majorly impacted by NIL. There is no doubt about it. Missouri built their team on NIL. Florida State built their team on NIL. Um, the Gamecocks lost Shaheen Bell, Marshawn Lloyd, Gilbert Edmonds, and Jordan Birch. I'm not saying they're world beaters if those four are still on the team, but they're a lot better. Uh, but they're far more competitive today with those four than uh, without uh, those four. And the reason they don't have those four is the lack of NIL assets. And I can't speak personally to what happened at Clemson, who got away and who didn't come. Because Dabo, once again, is not I – mean, he's been publicly – and, and pretty outspoken in opposition to the way these new things are, are happening because it, I mean, it changes the, the way he's built his program. Now he'll, he'll adjust it. He'll be fine in due time. I hope not, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but Clemson will not sit idly by and allow their football team to die on the vine. I mean, they, the one thing about Clemson's fan base and the people in charge of the university, I guess the biggest difference, and then I'll shut up the biggest difference in Clemson Nation and Gamecock Nation. Gamecock Nation has historically rewarded mediocrity. Clemson has historically not tolerated it. There you go. That, that's the way we can conclude and surmise. Gamecock Nation has historically and consistently rewarded mediocrity. Clemson has not. If they sense mediocrity, they do something. They do something about it. 843 661 0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Kind of get the train back on the track. I mean, I am as lost as <laughs> can be when it comes to politics. Haven't really done politics since well, last Tuesday. Since last Tuesday. And um, a lot has happened. And we'll kind of um, delve into some of the major stories, try to catch up as best we can. Uh, we got some guests with us in the seven and eight o'clock, eight and nine o'clock hour to kind of um, let's get the, uh, the blood back flowing in our political veins. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Real quick, somebody texted me a second ago and said, 
I bet the average fan has no idea how to make a contribution to an NIL. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that shame on the universities. Shame on the universities. Shame on the athletics departments. And I can tell you what's happening. You ready? And this will make me real popular uh, with, <laughs> with, with some of the establishment. If, if, the, if the Gamecock Club tells you how important NIL is and how to make contributions, guess what you might do? You might not give as much to the Gamecock Club. It's a fiefdom. Same thing with IPTE. I'm not a member of IPTE. I don't know how Clemson runs their business. I have a pretty good idea at South Carolina. So if you've got somebody out there competing for dollars, do you really care whether they try to make the football program better or do you care whether you meet your quota and you answer to your bottom line and you generate the amount of revenue you're required to generate? And I'll ask you this. The NIL is kind of capitalism inside of socialism. I mean, these universities and bloated budgets saying, you know, uh, do, do we spend money smart or not? I mean, some universities probably do a much better job than others, but but the NIL is kind of this capitalist enterprise that, that operates in conjunction with, you know, the bureaucratic agencies that are uh, these fundraising mechanisms for these two major football programs. Um, so if I'm running the Gamecock Club, the last thing I'm doing is telling my fan base how to make a donation to the NIL. I mean, I would probably rather my football team suck and me meet my my quotas. That's kind of where I think mm-hmm. these universities are. I'm not saying all, but but some of the universities that have struggled to embrace NIL look at it as a competition. Well, I can tell you this. The teams that succeed in NIL will win. The teams that don't won't. Period. End of conversation. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Kid, it sort of sounds like uh, our politicians, doesn't it? It sort of sounds like our Congress. It, it reminds right. me a little bit of the GOP establishment until Trump came along. Yeah. All right, now, boys, y'all stand back now. The Republicans in Congress are the lowest form of scumbag, godless, piece of a horse crap that I've ever seen at ditto for the Democrats. They don't pay it. They don't give one iota about what the voters want. If the Republicans cared what we thought, which they don't, they would put somebody in there that will embrace and push forward the agenda we voted for them to do. And all of us suckers vote for these pieces of crap, and they get up there and they screw us every damn time. And let me tell you this, too. If you are a Democrat, like, and you sit there and really wake up in the morning, and you are comforted by the fact that your Democrat Party is there for you, and they're going to make life in America better for you, your government and your Democrat Party, you are an idiot. If you are a Republican, and you wake up every morning and think these Republican, these Republican politicians are there to make your life better for you, to give you more freedoms, to give you more opportunities, you are an idiot. They are tied in with the same cabal of that cathedral. They are playing us all like idiots, and we're letting them do it. They're daggone. What they're doing to us is beyond criminal, and we've just got this stupid look on our face like we, our face like we just hit into a double play. I mean, we are fools to sit there and think these politicians are our friends and give a crap about us, because they don't. And i tell you another thing, too. They will turn these wars in Afghanistan and uh, Ukraine and turn this war in Russia into another way to screw us and take away more and more of our liberties, more and more of our freedom, 
Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. You know, um, colorful way of saying that. Start of the week back off. Welcome yeah. back to politics. I, I can tell Breeze hasn't had a chance to vent um, for the last three days while we're raising money for the Children's Hospital. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm arguing. The argument I'm making this morning, and you can d- agree or disagree, um, Trump was the beginning of a chaotic and revolutionary period in American politics. I don't think that's an overstatement. And I think those who believed he was a blip on the radar, it was a brush fire, a fit and a rage, and we'd get back to business as normal. I think you're finding out now you were wrong. And now, is it good or bad? Is it, is it, you know, do we end up in a better place, a worse place? Do we lack the discipline to government or to govern? I mean, th- those are fair debates to, to had, but we don't have a speaker. Hadn't had one in about two weeks. And I mean, I don't know about you, but we played football over the weekend I mean, they're debating on whether to send another $60 billion to Ukraine or not. I just think these sorts of things that would never happen before are happening fairly regularly. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to go back to the comment that we kind of concluded the last hour on. How many of you believe, uh, how many of you would have believed that seven years ago, we would elect a real estate developer from New York with zero political experience. I mean, let's really think about these things in the, in, in the proper context. So seven years ago, the GOP voters had a chance to vote for a star-studded lineup. I mean, you've got a flavor of the day. You've got every kind of candidate you could imagine, and you got this other guy who's never run for office who's, you know, I mean, he's dabbled in politics. By that, I mean, he's always been full of himself and wants the bright light shining on him. <laughs> so he'll say, I'm thinking about running. I've considered running it. You know, these people, you know, come to my office asking for money. And and seven years later, we have a speaker elected, removed, and takes two weeks to put somebody back in his place. I mean, imagine that. I mean, imagine kind of sort of the, the political energy and the, and the difference of of where we, how we conducted political business in America for, you know, hundreds of years, a couple of hundred, well, no, nah, that would be unfair, for a hundred years post-Civil War, and then we just start doing things fundamentally different. We are in a very chaotic, revolutionary era in, in American politics, and the reason I know that is we don't have a speaker. And, you know, um, Washington and I tweeted this last week, I think. To me, one of the one of the issues at hand is Washington appears to be losing its kung fu grip. I mean, remember the you know the GI Joe with the kung fu grip. I mean, so so just assume Washington politics, the power uh, the power base in Washington is. I mean, it's this amoeba. It's um, it's not GI Joe with the kung fu grip, but it's a group of people who have had the kung fu grip on political persuasion and power for many 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 years, and they just can't convince the GOP to behave. They can't convince <laughs> one of the major political parties. And and I'm not sure about this because historically, parties that demonstrate an unwillingness and disinterest in governing 
pay a price at the ballot box. I mean, we talk about shutdowns and, you know, just um, the, the, the fringes in American politics. And we're told that ah, you can't trust those guys to govern, so why would we elect them? And, and I just I, I sense a, a shift in the sentiment of the voters. It seems to me that voters are more inclined to be sympathetic to those who will disrupt um, disorient well, the mean, status quo. To me, that is interesting because it, it it feels to me like Republican voters, for example, in the Speaker's race, wanted Jim Jordan. Um, yet the establishment has fought against that just as hard as they can, and they, they've succeeded. They've kept him from getting to the Speaker. I mean, does that seem to Well, you? I mean, it does, but then you've got to get into the weeds. You've got to say to yourself, okay, Josh is a, Josh is a House member in a swing district. Josh is a Republican that did a good job getting elected in a district that was carried by Biden by by six percentage points. I mean, Josh has got to be careful about what the American people want because his district doesn't want that. I understand, but if you poll the the Republican base and said, do you want Jim Jordan to be speaker or not? Overwhelmingly, I mean, I would argue 65-35. Yes, I want Jim Jordan to be the speaker. Well, I mean, but that goes back to this asymmetric relationship that I think the donor class and the voters, but you've also got to appreciate. I mean, there's no doubt we're in an asymmetrical relationship. I mean, there's no doubt the donor class that ran the GOP forever don't run it anymore. I mean, there's a vacuum there. You don't run it. I don't run it. America First doesn't run it because if we did, Jordan would be the speaker. I mean, if America First ran the party, and if America First was the slam dunk, you know, knockout winner of this battle for the heart and soul of uh, the Republican Party, Jim Jordan would be the speaker. But you've got such a slim margin, and you've got someone like Josh who has no interest in what the people of Florence or Sumter or Orangeburg want. He's more interested in upstate New York. Uh, what what do my people believe? And he goes to the caucus, and I mean, very few people have ever been inside these conversations, but I mean, there are these caucus meetings where Jordan's people go to Josh and they say, Josh, we really need you on board. I, I'm the consensus candidate. And by consensus, I mean, I'm the one, the majority of voters in the Republican party support. And Josh says, not in my district. I mean, not, not in my district. I understand it's two to one. I mean, I, I don't doubt that Jim, but, but I've got this district and this district's a bit squishy on you. And this district voted for Biden in uh, in 2020, and I can't I can't risk losing my political livelihood. It's all self preservation when you boil it right, right down. So Josh is not going to do what's in Jim Jordan's best interest. He's not going to do what's in the party's best interest. He's going to do what's in his best interest, and he's more likely to get elected if he can go to his independent voters in that district and say, "I stood against the extreme MAGA." You know, when, when MAGA leaned on me to make sure Jordan got to be speaker, I stood my ground and didn't say no, but hell no, I'm not giving in to any of that. And Josh becomes somewhat of a rock star. You know, you know what he is? He is a independent thinker. I mean, Josh has exhibited his ability to be independent and not influenced by the MAGA extremism. Now, I doubt he would say MAGA extremism because he's a Republican. You got to be careful and I mean, I've never heard, well, I mean, Mitt Romney, I mean, he says it a lot. I would say I hadn't heard many Republicans say MAGA extremism, but Mitt Romney um, says it a good bit. I was thinking about coming over this morning. Um, I read something yesterday in the National Review about um, the media are deeply disappointed 
that Hamas did not blow, excuse me, that Israel did not blow the hospital up in Gaza. I mean, they, they, they're heartbroken. And the New York Times mm. has kind of changed their stories. You know, so it sounded like the president was a little heartbroken. Well, did, I mean, he, did you hear the flippant comment he made? I mean, back to piling on Biden because that's what we do. But the flippant he com- the comment he made about you got to learn to shoot straight. That was crazy. Oh, how inappropriate. Yeah, that, that was you and I were talking one day before we went on the air with the Children's Miracle Network. That was crazy. That, that he said, they'll say you got to learn to shoot straight. I said, these are missiles in hospitals, right. dude. I mean, this and isn't shooting people. cans off a damn fence post. I mean, this sitting good old boys might have had one too many beers. Hey, don't point that gun over here. You know, got to learn to shoot straight, man. It's point that gun. I mean, this is not, I mean, this is international diplomacy and world peace at stake. I mean, this is Hamas and Hezbollah and Israelis and, you know, whether or not American uh treasure i mean th- th- there's some belief now i don't know where you guys stand i mean i think american boots are on the ground i mean i'm convinced of that we, we reported before we went off to our um to do our charitable endeavor with mcleod we reported that there are about six thousand special force troops or special forces troops that are not where they normally are did did you see that apparently apparently the White House Instagram account doxed some of those people. When Biden met with some of those special force, special operations uh, uh, people, um, he took pictures with them, and then the White House Instagram put it out and showed their faces. And these are dudes with tattoos. Yeah, you don't and, need to know who they are. Right. I mean, that's... <laughs> it's incompetence. Exactly. But, I mean, that's who we're being governed by. Incompetence personified. I mean, Joe Biden is an incompetent president. His administration has been incompetently prepared for whatever comes down down the pike. But but to to, to make the remark of you, you know you, you got to learn to shoot straight. I'm thinking to myself, are we in the Petey River? I mean, if somebody put Pepsi bottles on a fence post, and, and the one that shoots the straightest is the one that you know carries home the the extra twelve pack of natural light. I mean that that that's it's 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 bizarre. But but once again. It is incompetent and co- incoherent. Somebody, the guy has always been somewhat incompetent, and now he's demonstrated a a perpetual incoherence. But I was thinking about the the narrative, and I think this is important because we're talking about you know what the controlling forces are. Uh, we had a big debate for an hour about NIL and IPTA and the Gamecock Club and Missouri and those who you know have practiced effectively utilize the NIL and those who have lagged and, and for whatever reason, I mean, I know the reason it's called self-preservation fiefdoms. Um, but anyway, I, I was thinking about what, what is such an, cause, cause when I read the story, it was about, you know, the, the, the first news to break was Israel bombed a hospital in Gaza and killed, you know, uh, hundreds of Palestinians. And then the New York times basically corrected themselves Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, all these mainstream media publications. But I wrote something down this morning. The college, well, let me back up. The elite college to media pipeline. That is, that, that's an important element today's political discourse. And it really, I mean, it, it's almost like we could put together a greatest hits. I mean, remember how the media told us that um, the, 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 the Jesse Smollett story was true? I mean, they, right. they, they didn't ask for corroboration. I mean, they wanted to believe it was true. Um, the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, the 51 national security agents that signed a letter 
I the majority of this is influenced by this elite college to um, media pipeline, and it coincides with an elite college to um, administrative government pipeline. So you've got about 10 or 12 or 15. Remember when Matt Lauer, oh, how, many, how many of you got? Remember Matt Lauer got accused of sexual improprieties, sexual harassment. He lost his job. I think he got a big pay uh, payday going out the door, kind of like a golden parachute on, on Wall Street. But Brian Williams, and I'll never forget this, NBC was hosting a debate shortly after Lauer uh, was found to have harassed sexually female coworkers. Uh, now, some say consensual or not. I don't know. I mean, let, let's, you know, in the era of woke and political correctness, I don't know what's consensual and, and what is not. But, but anyway, um, Lauer got in trouble. NBC let him go. And NBC hosted a presidential debate shortly after that. And Brian Williams was kind of the um, the MC of the pregame show, so to speak, before they handed it off to the um, to the panel. And Williams went on and on about all the panelists were females. And he not only said they're all females, he said nearly all came from elite universities. Uh, Ivy League. He's, he particularly said Ivy League universities. And then Manow didn't go to uh, – Manow went to, I think, Stanford and Oxford. And, and I remember Brian Williams saying, you know, the panelists we have are not only female, um, nearly all went to Ivy League universities, and the one that didn't, Rachel Maddow, woman looks like a dude, she went to Stanford and Oxford. So she might be even a little more pedigreed mm-hmm. than some of the Ivy League females. I just thought that was mm-hmm. quite interesting. We've done a pretty good bit of work about, you know, Jake Sullivan and his kindred spirits. I mean, Jake Sullivan and his fraternal brothers and sisters, those who graduate from these seven or eight or nine universities, it's almost like we need more. I'm not saying we need less college graduates. Eh, anyway, um, we, we need less college graduates from elite universities having prominent positions in media newsrooms and administrative agencies in government around the world. I mean, they, they, they come out of these elite universities where, as we know, what happens if a conservative comes to speak and is invited to speak at one of these elite universities? If they're invited. Well, yeah, but and, and if they are invited, if they get past that hurdle, then they are canceled, they are sometimes met with protests and sometimes violent protests, and these are the people that come out of those universities and end up controlling the media. Well, and, and the most recent example of a uh, an elite university consensus, and I'm not blaming Carolina and Clemson. We thought about football. Carolina and Clemson aren't elite. I mean, Francis Mary is not an elite university. Um, so, I mean, I think they're fine universities. I think they're great universities, and I think your kid can get a good education there. I hope so because i got a daughter there. Um, I mean, I, some of these universities locally, uh, you know, I think they do a good job in some ways of educating young people in certain skills and disciplines, but, but, but the elite universities have a certain pedigree associated and it's, it's, it's not of that value. It's just not. I mean, if, 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 if elite universities were that much better than everybody else, we wouldn't be $33 trillion in debt. But the most recent example, Rev, is the Hamas Israel situation Mm -hmm. and how many college graduates we're seeing it on on campus i mean we're watching you know um the kind of the attack on israel celebrated on campus at some of these elite universities well i mean that that's the elite university to media pipeline 
Not all of the kids going to elite universities are going to control the media. Not all of the elite or kids go to elite universities are going to control the, the administrative agencies or government. But the majority of media is controlled by elite university graduates. The majority of administrative agencies within our federal government are controlled by graduates of Coastal Carolina and Francis Marion, South Carolina and Clemson. I mean, you know the answer to that. And there seems to be an almost monolithic mindset when it comes to how these young people are programmed to believe the world works. And then they take these very important roles in disseminating information or making decisions for our federal government. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. So what is the best? I mean, think about this, Josh. I mean, you're a younger guy, and it would matter to me. But but you're paying closer attention than the majority of younger um, people pay. But, I mean, if you asked a kid, uh, that's unfair. If you asked an American, forget age. If you asked an American today about the Jesse Musmo, I mean, they, they would say it's true. I mean, the it- media... Remember the the, the MAGA guys, Justy Smollett. Right. What say his name again? Uh, Jesse Smollett. Justy Smollett. Um, Juicy Smollett is how um, <laughs> I think. Uh, what's his name? What's the black comedian's name? Uh, Dave Chappelle. Yeah, Dave Chappelle. Um, Dave Chappelle's funny on that one. You heard him. Have Juicy Smollett. Yeah. yeah, he said, um, <laughs> you know, and and when 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 Juicy Smollett <laughs> said that four white guys in MAGA hats with rope you know, accosted him in uh, in the streets of Chicago when the temperature was seven below zero. You know why blacks were not outraged? Because we knew the brother was lying. <laughs> <laughs> we, we knew he was lying. But, but, but Josh, if you were to, here's, here's the power of the media. A, a lot of Americans believe that's still true. Yeah. I mean, a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of Americans believe that Donald Trump actually said um, that the Nazis are good in Charlottesville. I mean, that, you take these narratives, the, the, the most upset people in media over the weekend were those that graduated from elite universities that began to realize, and I guess to some degree begrudgingly accept, that Israel didn't blow up a hospital. But, I mean, they told America for a couple of days that, you know, the Israeli army bombed a Hamas or a Gaza hospital, and that's just not the truth. So here's the point I'm trying to make. We can make a list, a long list of things the majority of Americans probably still believe that have no basis in truth, none whatsoever. The Hunter Biden laptop was Russia disinformation. I bet if you polled Americans, 25 to 35% of Americans would say yes, but because the media told that story to begin with, um, it, it you know, you can't question the election. Why? Because... The elite university controlled media said that the election was not the election was stolen is the big lie. And nobody wants to be on the side of the big lie. I mean, you've heard liberals say the big lie. Well, I mean, is it? I don't know. It, it, the point I'm trying to make is we live in an age and era that, that not only does the media intentionally misrepresent, it sticks. I mean, it's not transitory. And and I was thinking about some of these big stories, some of these big moments. How many Americans still believe things that have no basis whatsoever in the truth? It's almost like the media is accomplishing their mission. We, we talk about the decline of media, decentralization of media. Um, I mean, that's been to all of our advantage. But how many people take the time to really look into, see whether these things are true or not? 
And and I, I'm I'm willing to say if you asked a hundred Americans about Smollett, thirty five would say, yeah, that's the guy that got beat up by some white dudes, some MAGA extremists in Chicago. I mean, forget that it was found to be fa- you know absolutely fabricated. I think he got charged with fabricating a crime and all these other sorts of things, but the media didn't cover any of that. So here's my question this morning. How many Americans today believe that Israel bombed the hospital in Gaza? I bet it's more than you want to believe. Now, there's no foundational evidence at all to show that to be the truth. In fact, that there's counter evidence to that. I mean, there, there's a lot of evidence that now shows, you know, no, uh, it was a, it, you got to learn to shoot straight. It was a missile gone, gone bad. And that goes back to Biden. And the other thing Biden said, so curious to me, Rev, um, I'm not saying they, they, they meant to do it. You, you know what he said mm-hmm. um, about him? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying they meant to do it, but it really goes back to you got to learn to, you got to learn to shoot straight. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about, dude, we're talking about, we're talking about holy wars and we're talking about loss of human life. We're talking about a, a I mean, if indeed Israel bombed a hospital, that's a game changer. I mean, that, that, that really and truly is a game changer early in this, in this war that will probably escalate from here on. I don't know. We had Evan Brown scheduled to be with us at 7.05, but I think Evan is under the weather and was not able to join us. But Evan could have um, kind of reframed uh, where he thinks we are. Now, the one thing that I did read over the weekend, because I didn't check completely out, um, once I realized that my, my football Saturday was not going as I wish it would, <laughs> And it didn't take me long to see that to be uh, the case. By 4.30, I knew where we were headed. Um, but the hundred and – I think we've already sent $133 billion in military and economic assistance to Ukraine. Hold on to that number, $133 billion. That's not just military. That is military and economic assistance. In other words, we're paying first responders in Ukraine. Thank you, U.S. taxpayer. You may think that's a wise investment. I don't. So, so it's not all um, military. Some of it's economic, and some of it includes uh, while, while the country is being torn to smithereens, we got to pay these first responders. We don't have any money. How about them Americans? They're always good for several billion bucks. So we're at about $133 billion invested in military and economic assistance to Ukraine. Um, Mitch McConnell is for the Biden bill. That includes another sixty billion for Ukraine um, and fourteen billion for Israel. I think there's about ten or twelve billion for border security, and there's some other. I mean, just just you know what I call Christmas tree. Uh, that's when uh, a member sees a chance to put us an amount of money or an appropriation. I mean, it's it's pork is what it is, but that's the way the game is played. But that gets you to nearly two hundred billion dollars in Ukraine. Uh, McConnell says he's for it, but but he doesn't know how many House members are opposed. He really doesn't know how many members of his group. Tim Scott said yesterday that he opposes um, any further funding for Ukraine. He really didn't say that. Tim said he opposes putting the, the spending bill together. In, in other words, I think the majority of Senate and House members with an R beside their name would vote for a an appropriation of $14 billion to go to Israel. I mean, I think that is, I don't say it's unanimous because Rand Paul to vote against it. I think J.D. Vance has said he may vote against a standalone bill for Israel, but Biden's trying to get an extra, you know, $60 billion to Ukraine, and he's got a buddy in McConnell 
who will work for or work on behalf of the military industrial complex. And, um, and Tim Scott said yesterday, um, the Scott campaign is dying on the vine. I mean, we said yesterday, excuse me, we said one day last week before we took our break that they had pulled $40 million worth of pre-caucus advertising in, uh, in Iowa. Um, I read something yesterday that talked about almost out of money. That's hard to believe because he had more money cash on hand than about six candidates spent in 2016. Or maybe, Tim, I think his polling numbers nationally have dropped down to somewhere around 2 or 3%. Uh, remember when Tim got in, we talked about how many votes he took directly away from Haley. Well, apparently, you know, Haley has gained a little more momentum and traction. Um, it probably we're seeing somewhat of a consolidation around the anti-Trump candidate. Um, Nikki is almost level with DeSantis as the option A. You know, you got Trump, and then you got option A right now is DeSantis. Option B would be Haley. Option three would be uh, Ramaswamy. It's hard to call Ramaswamy option B because he's almost a Trump surrogate. I mean, they're almost saying very similar things here. It's a little bit like America first on one end is Trump and Ramaswamy. Um, the establishment on one end, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I understand she's trying to say she's not, but I think Nikki is on, and DeSantis is kind of sliding back and forth. You know, he and Scott and some of these others are sliding back and forth. But it looks to me like, I, I don't know, people gave Tim a shot. I mean, they gave him a month to prove himself. Um, the, the, the debate where he looked a bit, nah, I don't say unprepared, but, but he looked a bit confused on, on some, of the, um, some of the complicated issues that would lie uh, on a president's desk that he has to deal with at some point in time. And I think, you know, the, um, I mean, I, you know, and I mean this in, in the most complimentary way imaginable, the message of optimism is a bit misaligned with the state of the GOP voter. I think the GOP voter, like it or not, good or bad, different or indifferent, the GOP voter right now are looking some for somebody as frustrated as they are. And I think morning in America, shining city on a hill, just ain't what they want to hear right now. And I think Tim's hallelujah grin, you know, and his positive demeanor and his just his natural personality of being happy and optimistic I just think the GOP voter right now would rather somebody kind of, um, I would say, be as frustrated and bothered by the condition of the United States of America as they are. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. I'll tell you, one of the you're talking about Joe Biden appearing to be a bit incoherent and saying these I mean, it's just odd things. I mean, I don't want to say ridiculous things. Um, you got to shoot straight, man. I mean, that's not ridiculous if you're sitting on the bank of the PD River um, shooting at a can floating down the river. I mean, that's fine, uh, you know, with a, with a beer in your hand and, and right. kind of talking to your buddy, Rev and I are down at the river. We're, we're shooting our guns and got to shoot straight, man. I mean, this gun doesn't shoot as straight as that. But on, on, the, on the most important stage in the world, when you're talking about foreign conflict and what America's going to do or not, you, you don't say things like, well, I'm not saying they did it on purpose. And you got to learn, you know, I'll say you got to learn shoe straight, man. I mean, that, I mean people did die. I mean, imagine if, if Donald Trump had said something huh. like that. I mean, imagine if Trump had said something like, well, I'm not saying they did it on purpose, but you got to learn to shoot straight, man. 
the, the reason the world has become so chaotic, and I love these people that say, you know, the reason to not vote for Trump in 2020 was we got to get back to some sense of normal. Well, how's normal working out for you? I mean, we got, you know, Putin attacking Ukraine. We got Hamas attacking Israel. We got Israel responding. We got Tehran saying so, some pretty provocative things. You, you've got Iran. Excuse me. Yeah, you got, um, you've got China and Taiwan. You've got that situation. And you've got an incompetent leader. And you've got a nation in decline. I mean, the, the world is going to be chaotic for a while. Because the world believes that the American empire is on its last leg and its ability to tend to things all over the world are just not as it was. Um, I mean, I've never said, I mean, I'm a non-interventionist, but I've never said, you know, um, lose your strength, lose your ability to influence that. I've never said, um, I don't think I've ever said cut defense spending. I mean, I'm thinking about, have I ever gone on the record and suggested, I mean, I've said we spend a great deal more than our, uh, you know, our peer countries. I mean, the German as a percentage of GDP, China as a percentage of GDP, um, some of the European nations as a percentage of GDP. I mean, we're spending a great deal more of our GDP, um, you know, providing the essentials to our to our military. But I don't think I've ever said cut defense spending. I mean, I, I don't know that I understand it well enough to say yay or nay. Uh, what is the proper amount of money to spend on the American arsenal to make sure we're ready, willing, and able when American security is in danger, when Americans are um, not as safe as they probably historically have or, or should be? I don't know what that number is. I mean, it's nearly a trillion dollars now. I mean, I think it's $880 billion bucks a year in annual outlays that we spend in you know military investment. But But as I said the week before last, I think, the two biggest industries, and this goes back to a buddy of mine and I were having a text, the two biggest industries in, in the world are illness and war. I mean, that, you know, and right now we're dealing with multiple advancements. We've got the Russians attacking Ukraine, and America says, yeah, we've got to be in the middle of that. And you've got the, the, um, the situation in Gaga, Gaza and, and Israel, and obviously America's going to be somewhat involved in a, in a way, shape, or form um, there, I just think it's very calculating, but misleading to the American public to suggest that we can't do an Israel funding standalone bill. That's just kind of odd to me. Um, the American people, I mean, I've seen a poll about 70% of Americans. I'm not sure Josh is one of these, uh, but 70% of Americans believe that we should financially support Israel at a higher degree now than we do every year. I think it's $5.8 billion in a kind of a line item every year. Uh, there, there's some res, kind of a, a reciprocal effect we receive, and we tried to explain that before we went off three days last week. But, but you know, I just, I just believe the prudent thing to do today is, I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to spend money in foreign aid or, or foreign involvement, it, it has to be Israel. So, so the $14 billion appropriation earmarked for Israel, it, it doesn't have to be tied to the $60 billion, but McConnell and Biden, um, you know, a Republican and a Democrat, demonstrating bipartisanship. I mean, that's what Washington celebrates. I'm not sure that's what America is very much in tune with, but the, the $14 billion to Israel has been held, basically held hostage by the $60 billion um, to Ukraine 
So if 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 I'm Senator Dave Baker from New Jersey doesn't vote for the sixty billion to go to Ukraine, he's against you know um, the fourteen billion going to Israel, which is probably pretty shrewd politics, but very misleading uh, to the average American. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number, and and I think the reason the world seems unstable, the reason the world appears to be kind of searching for itself is the visuals of a guy falling down steps every day and falling over sandbags and can't complete a sentence and, you know, someone kind of grabbing him by the back of the arm and, no, this way, Mr. President, not that way, this Uh, way. I think it started with the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. Well, no doubt about it. I mean, there's no question about it. But but I think the optic of the, the optic of watching him struggle mentally and physically. I mean, it's obvious. Yeah. I mean, it, we're to the point now. I mean, there's no denying that. I mean, it's not it's not whether to Biden whether Biden is has some sort of mental issue or so, some issue with cognitive decline. It's how severe. I mean, I, you know, th- to begin with, people were saying ah, there's nothing wrong. Well, you can't medically evaluate from afar. Well, I mean, watch the stride. I mean, watch the way he shuffles his feet. And then the way he just, I mean, it, there's no, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's scary is what it is. I mean, it, it's, it makes me, as, a, uh, as an American, aware of the world around us, it makes me nervous. Who's in his ear and what are they telling him? And if, if my hunch or suspicion is correct, it is the majority of Obama acolytes. I think they're anti-Semitic. I mean, I can't prove that. I'm making a judgment from afar, but I think the majority of Obama acolytes, but I know Obama's an anti-Semite. I think the majority of, and I think Josh and I agreed, there's a difference in being anti-Jew and anti-Israel. And and I'll rephrase that. Is is Obama an anti-Jew? I don't know. Is Obama anti-Israel? Absolutely. Obama's a product of what? Elite education. The elite education system in America today is anti-Israel. Is it anti-Jew? Don't know. But it's hard to argue they aren't anti-Israel. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll be back in just a few moments. Hey, and the entire world is complicated, right? Health insurance is no different. Everyone's situation is different. There are a multitude of options to choose from uh, when planning health insurance for you and your family. You need to consult an expert. I think we'd all agree to that. Christian Levis at Real Choice Healthcare has been helping people get the right coverage at the best rate for years. Um, Rev and I sat in uh, an interview and, and listened to his, I don't know, his um, his model, for lack of a better word, how he saves you money. Um, if you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy and don't need all the bells and whistles, by that I mean you don't need maternity coverage, you don't want... So some of the mandated um, things that go along with the exchanges, you can save a lot of money. I mean, you really and truly can. 500 a month, 600 a month, 700 a month in some cases. Uh, but you got to do this. You got to call 839-888-3970. 839-888-3970. Or go to the website, Real Choice Healthcare. Dot com real choice healthcare dot com eight four three six six one oh nine three seven 
I guess we're the only three people awake this Monday morning. I'm <laughs> um, talking politics, trying to get back in the groove uh, as best we know how. Um, hadn't had a call since Breeze at about 6.30 or so um, this morning. I guess we've not said anything to inspire or solicit uh, yeah. a response. <laughs> uh, th- there's a lot going on in the world today. I've got one of these crazy theories, and I want to kind of go down this road for a second. Um, I think Biden sucks. I mean, I think Biden, I, I'll say this, in my life, and, and obviously I pay closer attention now than I did in 1976, the majority of bad presidents in my time have been compared to Jimmy Carter. Right. But, but I've never heard that people believe Carter was a crook or a, or a bad guy. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of Republicans even believe that Carter was wrong on most things, uh, the Carter malaise and not – you know, not, not strong enough. And maybe that was the, um, I mean, that's why Reagan kind of, you know, aggressively swept into the white house and, uh, you know, um, strength by, I mean, the great, uh, what is the He's, old football terminology that the best defense is a good offense mm-hmm. and the best offense is a good, is a good defense strength or peace through strength, strength was something, uh, the phrase he coined and, and maybe, um, Reagan personified the anti-Carter and you wanted Reagan to win, but I but I could offer up an interesting theory, and everybody look at me like I'm crazy when I say this. There, there's a bit of me that thinks it's probably not in the GOP's long-term best interest to win in 2024. I mean, it's a little bit like Hoover. I mean, that you know, um, Hoover was responsible for some of the economic misgivings, um, Hooverville, and some of the policies and whatnot. But, but it was 20 years after Hoover got elected before Republican got elected again. And I just think there are things that are going to happen to the economy in the next, in, from 24 to 28. I think there are certain decisions that are going to have to be made by the American government that are going to be very tr- problematic. I would say draconian or devastating. Uh, that's probably going to very problematic to our daily lives. I mean, we're going to have to deal with some of these issues that we kick the proverbial can down the road for as long as we have. And something tells me that the, the, the party in the White House are going to be generationally blamed for what political leadership are reluctantly going to have to do. And you know where I'm headed. I'm talking about debt and deficit spending. I saw something over the weekend, guys. Um, I mean, we played Jeff Gunlash on, on the air a time or two. I mean, I don't want to get into charts and graphs and percentages and whatnot, but Gunlatch is basically arguing that if not for government stimulus and deficit spending, let me say this again, if not for government spending and deficit spending and stimulus and, and whatnot, the economy has grown zero since 2007. So for 16 years, every percentage of GDP growth can be attributed to not the natural economic cycles of a, of a capitalist or market-based economy, but rather macroeconomic stimulus, um, government intervention, quantitative easing, um, 0% interest rates. It has been so manipulated, so distorted, so detached from reality that whomever the next president is, is going to have to deal with that practicality and reality. And I'm not sure there's, no, I'm sure there is no easy answer. I don't know what the answer is, but it's not going to be an easy answer. And, and I'm thinking about the party in charge when these decisions are made 
are going to be held accountable. You're going to pay the political you know I mean? price? I, I just if something inside my instinctive gut says, you're right. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, very seldom do we get ourselves in a place where you consider, I mean, let's think about this, guys. I mean, we're at the precipice of a world war. I mean, I think a lot of people believe that. Now, now we can debate the declining empire, uh, the vacuum or void that is left as a result of America losing its way. And, you know, America's been a force of good, but they've also policed the world. And if America said it, uh, I mean, they meant it. And you better, you know, I mean, they, they, they'll, I mean, they've got more bombs and more jets and more aircraft carriers and more, you know, military arsenal than anybody in the history of mankind. And that carries a lot of weight. I mean, that really does. It's, it's a bit of a bully, but, but I guess to some degree it's justified in a weird way, but at some point in time, I mean, America doesn't have a monopoly on, on genius. I mean, there, there is no doubt that there have been ingenious contributions to the world via the American free market. I mean, I, there is no denying that. I go back to Milton Friedman, uh, the, the, the greatest inventions in the history of mankind. The things that have improved our lives have not come from some government laboratory. I mean, they've just not. They, they've been in the free market. But, but at some point in time, the world, which has other smart people in it, says, I mean, they've lost their way. I mean, they're spending a trillion. I mean, our deficit spending this year is already $1.7 trillion. I mean, we're not fighting a war. I mean, our deficit spending, I mean, the M2 money supply, remember we did this last week uh, or the week before. I mean, it went from 15 to $22 trillion. I mean, it's back to $21 trillion, and you're seeing the, uh, the heartache it's caused into the economy. And that's my point, Rev. My point is that whoever, or my prediction, I don't know if it's a point, but my prediction is whomever, is president, whomever appoints the secretary of commerce and, and the, uh, you know, the fed chair and the, the treasury secretary, whoever makes these very important consequential appointments are going to be held accountable. If it unravels, I mean, if we're at the beginning and I think we are, but because there are, there are kind of secondary debates here. There's never been a time in American history that we considered our debt problem as significant or a threat to security as what's happening with Hamas and Israel, what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. And I just, I mean, the people that I listen to and, and pay close attention and I think know what they're talking about, they have skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, I'm talking about the Peter Thiels of the world, the Jeffrey Gunlatches of the world, the Arkashians of the world. I mean, they're, they're sounding a little bit alarmed. Now, now Thiel would be different because he's somewhat of a provocateur. I mean, he would be the, uh, you know, he would be the consummate ideas guy who's always got something to say about the world, you know, vanishing as we know it right before a little our bit very of contrarian. eyes. Well, I mean, he's very much a contrarian <laughs> and a cynic and uh, smart, very smart. Nobody denies that. And the one thing I think you've got to accept about Teal is he's got an enormous amount at risk. I mean, I'm sure he's got, uh, you know, a couple of hundred billion dollars put back somewhere insulated from you know, world disaster or global disaster, economic meltdown. But, but I mean, he's, he's got a lot of skin in the game. He's in the investment business. He's in the entrepreneurial business. He's in the innovation business, seed capital, private capital, venture capital. I mean, he's in all of that. So he's got to have a pretty good understanding of what lies ahead. Um, and I don't think he's insulated by Silicon Valley. I mean, he's a Silicon Valley gazillionaire, but I don't think he's the guy that says, 
you know, everything that matters in the world is, uh, is about Silicon Valley. I think he understands um, China, and I think he has a, a very strong opinion about our intervening in certain places militarily around the world. That's probably what led him down the road of an America firster. I mean, there, there is no rationale to Teal being America firster, right? I mean, other than Trump's stance on China. I mean, I don't want to say he's a one-trick pony, but that seems to be something he laser focuses on. But but imagine when you've got some of the brightest people in America and you say, hey, what's more important to our safety and security, our, our financial undiscipline or the world around us? In other words, you've got Russia invading Ukraine. You've got Hamas basically committing genocide against Jews in Israel. And some of the really bright minds that I pay attention to say, yeah, I mean, those are terrible. I mean, and, and they're troubling and they're to be paid close attention to. But our biggest problem is our inability to control our spending. I mean, imagine that. I mean, imagine historically we've always said that, you know, I mean, there's been this big debate about America. Are we going to police the world or not? Is it our job to police the world or not? And that's always been a monumentally fundamental issue that we have legitimate political discourse to debate over. Fair enough. I mean, I tend to be more non-interventionist than I've ever been. And I think the reason, because someone asked me a while back, so the, 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 um, the evolution that you've been on was created by what? And I said, common sense. What, what do you mean common sense? Well, I mean, everything I've been told since Vietnam has not been true. I mean, sooner or later, look, look at the facts. Look at the data. Look at what we were told and what came to fruition and they're just disconnected from one another. I mean, you know, we're going to go to Iraq, and they're going to embrace democracy, and out of that comes a peace-loving and capitalist Middle East. Really? Really? I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing that I gave that the time of day. But, but you know, you're naive, you're a Republican, you, you want to support the, the military, and you kind of a neoconservative, whether you know it or not. And, and next thing you know, we, we spend multiple trillions of dollars Kids are walking around, you know, with their legs blown off and, and half their head gone. And you're saying like, wow, okay. Is the Middle East more secure and, and, and more democratic than it was before we spent multiple trillions of dollars? And it goes back then. I thought Josh kind of nods his head a little bit when I say the two most lucrative businesses on the planet are illness and, and war. And here we are again. Well, our, our investing in foreign wars has created a financial reality that we have no clue how to deal with. We are pretty good at telling people what to do and how to do it around the world. I mean, we've gotten real good at that. I mean, we, we go to a foreign leader. We involve ourselves in, in foreign elections. And, you know, um, America carries a big stick. And we go to the Middle East. And we, you know, we require certain things of certain nations. And, I mean, if you don't do this, then, you know, you've crossed that, what was the red line? And all this, you know, it's, it's, it's a bunch of political theatrics is what it is. But, but, and, and you look at, okay, but, but how are we, what are we borrowing the money? I mean, cause, cause somebody had to ask at some point in time, I mean, I, I just wonder this, and I don't know the answer to this question and we're rambling a bit this morning, but I wonder how many people in elected office in some of these meetings, and I'm talking about subcommittee meetings where they're really hashing out. I mean, this is where the sausage is made. I mean, it would be the meeting before the meeting. I mean, the meeting is televised on C-SPAN. And, but, but I'm talking about the meeting before that meeting. I wonder how many conversations are there about the debt, the debt 
and how do we how do we get ourselves back in some sustainable fashion? Where do we go from here? Who do we say no to? How do we do this? How do we how do we do that? Because up until now, most Americans were not concerned. It has to be done by any means necessary. Um, we can't let what's happening. We can't let the genocide in Ukraine stand. And you know, nobody thought about yeah, but what does that cost? We can't allow Hamas to attack Israel. Ah, you're right, we can't. But what does that cost? I mean, where do we? And I, and I wonder in some of these meetings that you and I will never be privileged to. I wonder when when McConnell sits down with the caucus and says, "Hey, the president asked for it. The president has asked for another sixty billion to go to Ukraine, uh, fourteen billion to go to Israel, and I'm for that. I'm not for breaking that apart." Does anybody in that room say, "Well, where does that seventy? I mean, where does this, you know, $133 billion spending bill? you got to hope somebody's asking that question. Publicly, you don't hear very enough about it at all. You don't hear people discussing it or debating it in public. But I hope in those meetings somebody is saying, Okay, hey. and if somebody says that, if somebody, you, you're hopeful, uh, probably more optimistic than I. <laughs> but but let's say that you're right, Rev. Let's say some, let's say John Thune um, says, Senator, I'm with you. And, and I do believe that historically we've had a role to play. In, in, in making sure that certain things work the way they need to work in the world to preserve our status as empire. I mean, a superpower empire, same thing. Um, but, but are we to the point now? Because I don't think people talked about it until recently. And I think there, there, I don't know if somebody set the alarm off at 33 trillion or 32 trillion and the alarm went off and everybody's all of a sudden like, wow, damn. I mean, we got a big problem here. I mean, can we really fund? some of these excursions and endeavors. I don't think we can. And, and I think America is going to have to make a decision. Are, are we, are we going to let Israel and Hamas settle their dispute? Or are we going to write checks that we can't cash? Cause that's what we're doing. I mean, we're basically cutting checks and, and, and we're creating a financial dilemma that, that is the debt bubble. I mean, it's not a housing bubble. It's not an automobile bubble. It's not a farm bubble. It's not a tulip bubble. I mean, it's a debt bubble, unlike any the world has ever seen. And and I just I just sense, and I don't have any uh, official opinion from the the White House saying, hey, you know, we can't do this because. But I just I just sense that we're getting to a place now where every expenditure made whether it's Ukraine, whether it's securing the border, whether it's Israel. And I think we question securing the border less than we question spending in Israel, spending in Ukraine. And I told you last week, I mean, I'm more inclined to be supportive of intervening in Israel in some way, shape, or form because of my adherence to a biblical worldview. I mean, I'll readily admit that. I mean, I told Josh, Josh said, I kind of respect you for saying that. You know, you, you, you got one perspective on one place in the world, you got another perspective on the other place of the world, but you've admitted that your perspective is clouded, skewed, um, based on this worldview um, that I have. But I just wonder at what point in time do we, by necessity, say to the rest of the world, you figure it out. I mean, that, that's a crazy option. And that gets you thrown out of Washington, and you'll never get invited on Meet the Press if you say that. Because, I mean, that, that, that neuters the military-industrial complex. I mean, that neuters the Federal Reserve. I mean, if, if the American government all of a sudden said, look, I mean, we're out. I mean, we're tapped out. I mean, we're, we're, we're the consumer in 2008. We're tapped out. We don't have any more. 
I mean, whatever happens in Gaza and Israel, we'll pray, but we can't intervene. We can't send funding. Uh, Ukraine, Russia, we know we're better off with a weakened Vladimir Putin, but we just can't do anything about it. China and Taiwan, I mean, as much as we'd love to see Taiwan stay sovereign and stay detached from, uh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, we can't do anything about that. We don't have the money. We don't have the resources. We don't have the financial capacity to do some of these things that we've historically involved ourselves in. What does the world look like if, if somebody in Washington of power and authority say to the rest of the world, we just can't afford to do that. And when you hear really bright people say that our greatest threat to national security is not Hamas and Israel, it's not Ukraine and, and Russia, it's rather our inability to stop spending money we don't have. So if you believe that the biggest threat to national security is our inability to stop spending money we don't have, you got to address that. I mean, it's got to be more important. And I guess that's what I'm asking. Uh, to, to, to a foreign policy hawk, I would ask Lindsey Graham, if he were in this studio today, I'd say, Lindsey, I get it. I mean, you, you have a more hawkish view of the world than I do. I respect that because I think you know what you're talking about. And I think you genuinely believe that. I think some of that's influenced by your support of the military industrial complex, which you become very friendly with over the years. But I'll accept that you're, you're an honorable man trying to do a decent and an honorable job. But, but at what point do we say we can't? Why can't you? Because we don't have the money. We can't. I mean, there, there are a lot of people going on vacations this summer, this coming summer, this past summer, that would like to stay at the Ritz-Carlton. But they stayed at the Garden Inn or the Courtyard. Why? Why did they stay at the Garden Inn the Courtyard not the Ritz-Carlton, Rev? Because that's what they could afford. Bingo. I mean, it's, it's simple economics. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. I'm not an auto worker. I'm not in the market for a new car. But I got to believe at some point in time, this strike will have an eventual impact on, I don't know, the auto industry and the way we get replacement parts. And if someone does need a new car, Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. He's with us this morning. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Good morning. And this strike is still going. At, at, Jeff, at what point in time do we begin to sense that um, this impasse is causing, I don't want to say chaos, but concern in the auto industry. Well, I think we're already starting to sense it. Uh, you know, there's going to be delays on midsize trucks now. Uh, you're talking about the Ford Ranger, GMC, uh, Canyon, the Chevy Colorado. Those were the initial truck plants that were shut down because of this strike six weeks ago. Uh, and, and, you know, that Ford F-150 plant that shut down in Kentucky a couple weeks ago, we'll start to see, uh, you, you know, some, some delays on that. That's the number one selling vehicle in America. So it's a huge deal, a huge hit to, to Ford. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, this, this strike is now well into its sixth week, and there's been no negotiations. Uh, I'm sorry, no movement on negotiations uh, after Ford and GM late last week said that they've they've reached their limits on what they can offer. They've given a 23% pay raise and other benefits uh, and and, uh, and job protections over a four-year contract. GM has offered to unionize EV battery plants, and Ford and Stellantis have not. Union boss Sean Fain, in his bargaining address Friday, said that while progress is being made with GM and Stellantis, which also agreed to a 23% pay hike, that Ford can do more, and Ford's been pretty vocal about what it can do and, and where it's going, and, and how much destruction this uh, this this ongoing strike is is causing the company. 
Um, you know, meantime, another 360 Ford employees were told not to report to work today uh, as the UAW strike continues with now close to 7,000 auto workers laid off across the big three uh, and with 34,000 uh, workers still walking picket lines in protests over pay and benefits and job protections. Um, we did a story last week uh, about how fatigue is setting in with these auto auto workers walking the picket lines. And, and they've, you know, uh, I can tell you right now, they are talking to union management and saying, look, you know, how long is this going to last? Uh, it's getting cold. You're only giving us 500 bucks a week, and that's before taxes for a stipend to be able to walk the picket line. We've got a family. Christmas is coming up. It ain't working. So uh, we'll see who caves. I think that UAW, um, if you're asking my opinion, I think the UAW is just waiting for a little bit more. I think they're waiting for, for Stellantis and GM to say, all right, we're going to unionize these EV battery plants because that's where we're going. If, 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 if the government's going to mandate that we switch over to EVs, these transmission jobs, engine jobs, they're gone. We're going to all electric EV battery plants. We need to unionize those. And so they want some movement on that. And then I think we might have, have a deal. That fourth, that, that four day work week. I don't know if anybody really took that seriously. Uh, maybe it, maybe it's a legitimate ask for, for the union. Um, but um, I think a 23% raise where they're at right now, if, if they secure the, the, the unionization of those EV battery plants, the other protection, the other job protections and benefits that they've gathered, I think we're probably closer to a deal. Very well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. You too. That's kind of an interesting perspective on the economy. And, um, I mean, my, my concern is this. We talked about asset inflation and, you know, macroeconomic stimulus. I sound like I know what I'm talking about when we talk about these economic matters. But, but in reality, what the concessions the manufacturers are making add what to the cost of a vehicle? I mean, I'm for the worker getting all he can. I mean, you've heard me, America first, a pro-worker, pro-American family, pro-American way party. Um, but, but the American worker will be required to buy a truck or car to get from point A to point B. What appreciation, what inflation value is this negotiation going to cost to the price of automobiles? Um, I mean, I, you, I, I don't know this to be true, but I've been told that there are Ford and Chevy vehicles, trucks out there now north of a hundred thousand dollars i mean that's crazy to me but but i'm told that's the case um you know it's not uncommon you would know better than i rev it's not terribly uncommon to see a ford or chevrolet truck or suv priced at 80 85 90 thousand oh, dollars yeah. i mean that's absurd i remember back in the day back in the good old days of understanding the world around me that when mike tyson made a bunch of money as a boxer early in his career he wrecked one of these BMW supercars, and this would have been back in the 80s, I guess, and uh, might have been the early 90s. But anyway, Tyson, um, Tyson wrecks one of these BMW supercars, and the article said, I mean, it was the only, you know, road-issued and road-legal car over $100,000. And I remember thinking to myself, good land, $100,000 for an automobile. Now you got Ford and Chevrolet pickups toying around with, $100,000 price tag. Let's go to the phone. Rajan in Darlington. Good morning, Rajan. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, listen, um, I was I was uh, watching uh, a, a Fox interview with General Jack Keene. Uh, I, I can't remember the, the, the show it was, but he made a very, very interesting comment. He said that by, you know, uh, funding Ukraine, 
uh, it increases the the uh, the economy of America because you know they're not directly giving the money to Ukraine; they're giving it to the the uh, you know the the not the automakers, but the you know the the, the guys that are that are that are buying that they're buying all the all their their arms from, which are in the United States. And I was like, well, that was a very very interesting comment. And then a few days later, I saw him say the same thing. So what the heck is going on here? This is how they're doing it. This is how they're they're. Uh, I, I it doesn't make any sense to me. Thank you, Rujan. But I mean, I've, I've heard that. I mean, that's that's yeah. been that's been repeated. Too. It's kind of the narrative now. The neoconservatives are now arguing that the war in Ukraine and I guess the war in Israel is an American jobs program. I mean, you know, American workers have to build bombs and American workers have to make bullets and, uh, and American workers have to build machine guns. And um, I mean, to some degree, he's right. I mean, you know, if the American military industrial complex are, are largely, you know, I am, if the employers of the, mili- of the American military industrial complex are largely American and, you know, we spend an extra 100, 200, 300 billion dollars building bombs and weaponry, then I would imagine the American worker benefits but is that really the way we're arguing now for intervention? I mean, it's not whether or not the merits of involvement, you know, um, dictate American safety and security. It keeps people busy at home. I mean, it's a workers' program. That's propaganda uh, from the lobby and a consulting class of the American military-industrial complex. Nothing more. I mean, I don't buy that at all. I mean, if we're really going to base our military involvement and engagement in foreign conflicts on how many jobs it creates— and how many bonus hours employees get at Raytheon or McDonnell Douglas, then count me out with that. But that has been some of the narrative of the military-industrial complex, uh, you know, propagandist on mainstream media. Now, here's what you need to remind yourself of, and you can do this. You don't need me doing this for you. You can do it yourself. Every time a former general or former military personnel come on uh, one of these shows, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, CBS, ABC, NBC, see if he's sitting on a board of a military industrial complex company. I mean, every time this guy comes on CNN and he's a decorated four-star general, look and see if he's now a member of a board of one of the military industrial complex providers. Take a break back in just a few moments. So when you, when you hear the, Rujan brought up an interesting point, so, so the argument now is, um, that there, there, there's added benefit. There's ancillary benefit, us being involved in Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Gaza because American workers get more hours and higher pay and the stocks do better. I mean, if we've really been reduced to that, then I'm sure uh, that I was right in the previous segment when I said, because here's an interesting phenomenon, Josh. Play this out. Let's assume I mean, for argument's sake, I don't, I mean, this is hypothetical. I don't have any idea if this happens or not, but let's say that I'm right. And there are some in Washington now considering whether we could continue to deficit spend at the level we have. And I mean, if we can't, what happens? Things get cut. I mean, there's no way around that. I mean, things, I mean, there's going to be a natural kind of a change in what happens in the way things are done in Washington. So if you are, a military-industrial complex consultant or lobbyist, why wouldn't you begin to addressing a re-strategy? Why wouldn't you re-strategize why this is so important? 
It's not about global security and safety. Now it's about American workers. I mean, that kind of endears yourself to this America first, right? I mean, the, the, the agenda. This non-interventionist is almost like how demented can you be when, when you see a movement a front or a foot and it's taken hold and it's dominating one political party and it's about, you know, let's take care of our own. I mean, you, I, I care about what happens in Ukraine. I pray for the people in Ukraine. I am bothered by the butchering in Ukraine. I care what happens in Israel. I mean, I understand the Bible and I understand prophecy and I understand, you know, the, the loyalty associated with America and Israel. But but a dollar's still a dollar. And and a trillion's still a trillion. And we've got to figure out a way to stop spending a trillion dollars we don't have. And the only way to do that is cut. Well, I mean, if, if the ones that are saying cut, cut, cut are, are the ones that say we're spending too much money in foreign lands and there's one place we can cut, then why wouldn't you kind of invert your argument and say, well, it's not about national security and safety. I mean, how many American workers will lose their job if we cut the defense budget by, you know, $20 billion or $100 billion? I mean, our defense budget's about $850 billion. I mean, I could argue easily, but all in, it's over a trillion. So it's a it's a trillion-dollar line item in our budget. Medicaid is about a trillion dollars. Social Security, about a trillion dollars. Um, Medicare is over a trillion dollars. Debt service will soon be a trillion dollars. I mean, imagine that. So, so let's say that we're right, and, and somebody in Washington is beginning to believe that there's going to be a shift. Um, something happened this past week, the yield curve, and I don't want to get into that. That gets real confusing. Um, there, there's not as much demand for the dollar. There's not as much demand for American debt. That's why the yield curve went over 5%. I mean, you got supply and demand. The government's supplying a bunch of debt, right? I mean, we know that $1.7 trillion this year. There's always been a an accepting marketplace for American uh, government debt. And all of a sudden, they want a higher rate. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'll buy some American debt, but I don't want it at 4%. I don't want it at 3%. Have you not seen the Fed rate and, and some of the, uh, I mean, we can get better rates on our money uh, a lot of other places. And and uh, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that some of the tried and true fundamentals of the economy are beginning to rear its head. And we're paying a significant price, and we're going to pay uh, an enormous price if that's the case. So if the majority of people do say we spend too much damn money on these foreign wars, unlimited money for endless wars, I mean, that's kind of a mantra of America first, right? I mean, nearly every America first to some degree buys into unlimited amounts of money for endless wars cannot continue to be the norm. So all of a sudden, the military industrial complex and its ingenious marketers say, it's not about Ukraine and Russia. It's not about Gaza and Israel. It's about the American worker. It's about the plant in Seattle that makes rockets, the plant in Austin, Texas, that designs fighter jets. It, it is about the American worker. And how dare you um, cut the budget of, of you know people who depend on these jobs to make the American economy strong? That just leads me to believe that there's a suspicion in our nation's capital that we're closer than we think in having to make some pretty serious cuts in, in the way we spend our money. And I'd ask this question to our listeners. You guys are more equipped than I am. Um, is it about the money? I mean, is, in other words, are you driven? Or are you motivated? If, if we were flush with cash and the budget was balanced, 
I mean, if the government was running a surplus and we were spending $4.2 trillion and taking in $4.6 trillion every year, and, you know, what, whatever the revenue side, the raise taxes, high earners, corporate income, I mean, there's a, a multitude of th- scenarios I've heard of ways to generate uh, more revenue. But, but what, if we, what if we were there? Would, would the non-interventionist, fatigued neoconservative feel the same way if we were flush with cash? I mean, it kind of gives me an out. When, when, when my good Jewish friend says, well, I mean, America's always been a loyal supporter of Israel. And I said, yeah, but America's never been 33 trillion in debt. Is that my excuse? Would I use that same excuse to my good Jewish friend if America were flush with cash and taking in more than it spent? I, I did, that, that's kind of an interesting, I don't know. I mean, would you feel differently, Reb, uh, about Ukraine and Russia and um, Israel and Gaza and Hezbollah and Hamas and some of these other places. Would you feel different if we had our government running like a fine, like a well-oiled machine and we were running surpluses every year and the trains were running on time and the bridges were being repaired, the airports were completely modern and updated? I mean, I, I think it would be easier to say, okay, I mean, you're right. We are an empire. Along with being an empire comes a responsibility of the world around us. And let's take some of the um, some of the military industrial complex budget. Let's take some of the discretionary spending and that's allowed to make the world a better place. I just don't think, I mean, this is so shallow to say, but I don't think we can afford to make the world a better place anymore. And I'm not so damn sure we've made the world a better place by our, our involvement and incursions and invasions and, you know, um, just interventions all around and, and over the world. 843-661-0937. Yeah. I don't know if, if I, I'd like to say that, if I were in charge of making those decisions that I would make them based on the merit of the decision, what's in the interest of the American people, you know, regardless of the money, whether you're in good financial standing or not. But, but you would agree, you can't make that decision separate of a financial state. I mean, you, well, most people well, can't, I mean, but the government what, apparently can. What does, what, but let me think about this. Stick with me. So Congress's ultimate responsibility is what? To appropriate, right? Spend taxpayer dollars. So how do you make a decision about whether or not, to be involved in Ukraine, whether or not to be involved in Israel, without thinking about what your what your really ultimate responsibility is, and that's to be an appropriator. To, to me, if you're in Congress, every decision you make has to be with that in mind. How much money do we have? How much money have we spent? Where can we do better on? Or what can we address? I mean, how do we make Medicare more sustainable? How do we make Medicaid more sustainable? How do we you know, stop spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have? If, if you're a member of Congress, you can't make a decision without considering the financial result because that is, once again, your ultimate responsibility. You are an appropriator. You pass a budget. Well, I mean, we'd like to see them pass a budget yeah, instead of to. CRs and omnibus bills. But, but I just, you know, the, the merit of the decision. I understand what you just said. I mean, is it, is it more meritorious to go and help Israel than it is to go and help Ukraine. I think it is. But if I'm a member of Congress, I can't make either of those decisions separate of the financial consequence. If I do, I'm not doing the job someone sent me to Washington to do. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, and I'll say this before we go to the phone. You know, Republicans and Democrats have historically debated what to spend the money on. Fair. I mean, that's fair. But but we... (laughs) 
how do you debate spending a trillion you don't have? And that's the only thing they agree on. I mean, well, that, that's, that's the only thing they agree on is spending sure a trillion dollars that we don't have. Um, and that's going to, I mean, one day that's going to come home and roost. And I've just got a, I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you this. I'm willing to put revenue, additional revenue on the table. I never thought I'd say that. But I, but I do believe I mean, like raising taxes. I mean, it, no, I mean I'm fees. talking about making corporations more, more honor the tax code as individuals do. I, I'm willing to put that on the table. Cutting and, loopholes. And, and ten years ago, you would have never convinced me that I would ever leave my mouth. But I'm willing to to fix some loopholes. Um, you know, uh, disallow corporations from exotic ways to 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 avoid paying taxes. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. I want to make sure we give them some time. Jeff in Florence. Hey, Jeff. Hey. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. Um, so, Ken, I just heard you say you're okay with 87,000 IRS agents? <sighs> no, not that. You didn't hear me say that. <laughs> I said I am in favor. Abolish the IRS, uh, well, by I mean, the way. I, I'm in favor of doing away with some of the loopholes that corporations have lobbied to get for tax avoidance reasons. Right. So, so you realize that the, the national debt and tax cuts uh, trickle down. It's not really a, an effective economic theory. Ah, I would agree to that. I mean, I'm not a big trickle-down guy. I've never been that. Okay. We agree. Um, and you you mentioned, like, uh, what would Americans think um, if we didn't have a deficit? Would they be more in favor of supporting Ukraine and uh, 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 Israel? Right? Yeah. I, 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 I wonder what the sentiment of the America Firster would be. And that would probably be the most non-adventurous of, you know, the voters in America today. I wonder what they would feel like if we, we had an extra stash of cash sitting aside. And, you know, we knew the barbaric activities in Ukraine. And, and you know, I mean, I just, I just yeah, I mean, I, I wonder what, how different we'd feel today if we weren't in financial disarray. Right. Let me ask you this. How do you think the person sitting in the White House affects that same criteria? If it's a Republican versus a Democrat when these atrocities or these attacks or these engagements start to occur. Well, I mean, Jeff, I think you care about innocent lives being lost. I care about innocent lives being lost. But at some point in time, we have to answer to the bottom line. And I think feelings are what drove most of the deficit. And I'm not, you've never heard me blame Democrats for the deficit. I think Republicans are equally guilty of, of spending money they hadn't had. But, but I, I don't know how you calculate what you would do if you didn't have to make a decision based on how much money you have or don't have or can spend right. or can't and spend. You, you, you always talk about the next election and what politicians really pay attention to. And nothing's more popular than a wartime president. So whatever president is sitting in the White House, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, you know, that old saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. There's always going to be the other side questioning the morality of getting involved or engaged, regardless of finances. And you see that as reality, right? Sure. If, well, if it's, a it's, a, it's a moral question. House, I mean, it, it's a moral yeah. question what to do. If you have the ability so. to do something, you, you must. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'll accept that they're all moral issues when you decide whether or not to involve yourself in protecting innocent life. Right. And, and going back to uh, after 9-11, you know, George Bush had a mandate and a country behind him to take on Afghanistan, root out al-Qaeda get Osama bin Laden, and there was a overreach in the Middle East. And 
Jeff, we got a hard break, top of the hour, but I want to hold you over because I I got some questions for you. Back in a few. 843-6610937 is our number. We thought we had Ryan Schmelz teed up at 905 to talk about the House Speaker election, of which they have none. Um, It's It's true. Well, I mean, it's chaotic, but I kind of enjoy the chaos. I'll be honest with you. If you wanted somewhat of a revolution, which is what a lot of America firsters wanted, out with the old, in with this new way of doing things, it's going to be... Uh, a bit inconsistent. It's going to be a bumpy ride, uh, if you will. Since Ryan is not calling in, let's go to our good friend and resident liberal antagonist, Jeff. <laughs> we'll let you know if Ryan calls in during during Jeff's call. Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, liberal. Wow. Yeah. No. <laughs> but uh, no. You say are you, no. are you are you are you denying that? No. Mm-mm. Yeah, I'm not a liberal. There are there are no liberals. It's only extreme MAGA. And and a hardline conservatives. <laughs> no, nobody else gets labeled yeah. in politics, right? I mean, you know, are all Democrats liberal? No. Okay. So what are you? How would you label <laughs> I, yourself? I'm, just, I'm an American. We know you have TDS pretty bad. No, come on now. Who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look at the Republican Party. <laughs> I hear you. It's only it's so. only about seventy percent of us, Jeff. There are thirty still um in good standing at their country club i think you've got that inverse um and uh you can you can see that by the uh the secret ballot vote for jim jordan so on the floor amongst the swamp 20 votes yeah on the floor he loses 20 republicans when they don't have to show themselves in the light of day what did he lose by but but aren't you confirming my story that the the no, voters I'm, are I'm asymmetrical I'm saying you're you're saying that there's 70 percent that support Trump. I'm saying the House vote in private against Trump's handpicked nominee is about 70 percent against. No, but but yeah, but I, I don't disagree that 70 yeah, percent of in, DC in is against him. But but yeah, why well, why I mean, won't they? Uh, but let me ask you this: Why won't they publicly vote against him? Because of death threats. Because they're afraid of voters. Oh, or. They just don't want to deal with the 30% that's kind of crazy, right? I, I would say 10% kind of crazy on both sides. Well, yeah. So uh, either way, um, just talking about the, uh, the situation uh, with the war, um, can there be any doubt that, that uh, the United States has to play a role in the world stage? Agreed. And and do you think that you can reason or logic with Kim Jong Il like Trump thinks you can? Hmm. Depending on, I mean, what what is logic? I mean, is logic convincing him not to fire a nuclear weapon, or is logic convincing him to be fair to the people of North Korea? Do we really care about the people in North Korea? Or do we care about what is threat to the United States? No, I mean, the main thing we're worried about is nuclear prol- proliferation. Okay, so that's that's our goal, right? Sure. Our policy is to protect the United States. Correct. Okay, that's our goal with the military, correct? Because it's not to police the United States, it's to police the world. Well, I see, I would argue that the American military has become kind of a, uh, a crown for the American political consultant lobbying class. It's easy to go get money from government when you can scare people into believing that if you don't fund this or don't fund that, um, you don't sleep as safely at night in your home in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, so, 
it's that's that's a way to fund it. That's how you sell it. But the actual use of it, the use of the U.S. military is to protect the U.S. citizens and to create a stable world. Jeff, because you're such a good and decent guy, I know you'll do this. Hang on, sit tight. Ryan sure. just called in. I want to get to Ryan on the speaker. I'll come back to you because I'm going to continue this. It's not an argument. It's more of a debate today mm-hmm. than, than an argument. So let's put Jeff on hold for two seconds, and let's go to Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you, sir? So are we ever going to have a speaker, or is this kind of a uh, an ongoing event in perpetuity that leads to the last speaker we'll ever have in American politics is Kevin McCarthy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think we're going to have to find out. You know, the, they're going to have a candidate forum tonight around 6.30 Eastern time, or I should say 8.30 Eastern time. Sorry about that. And then they will, the, you know, debate behind closed doors, and they will elect possibly a speaker in conference tomorrow. And then maybe they'll go to the floor on Tuesday and see if that person can get the 217 votes needed to become speaker. Is there a front runner? Well, I think I think certainly Tom Emmer has uh, has a lot of support due to the fact that he already is the majority whip, and certainly those leadership positions help. He's got the endorsement of Speaker McCarthy, but he also has you know a little bit of the scorn of former President Trump. So I think there is an opportunity for candidates like Byron Donalds from Florida to potentially sneak by and, and gain some momentum as a dark horse candidate. And there's some other ones out there too. Certainly have have that type of backing as well. So I think we just have to wait and see. But I think it's hard to ignore Tom Emmer just because of of, of his experience and leadership. Ryan, who, I mean, you're, you're on Capitol Hill. Who is doing the majority negotiating? I mean, I hear McCarthy's name a lot. I hear Scalise's name. I obviously hear Jordan's mm-hmm. name. But behind the scenes, are there are there other Republicans who don't desire the, the bright lights doing a lot of the negotiation to try and find somebody who could get across the finish line? Well, Tom Emmer has been kind of a big part of that, which is which is ironic. We were just talking about him because whenever he's been, uh, uh, whenever there's been a situation like Jim, Jim Jordan trying to get the votes needed to become speaker, uh, a lot of times they've been meeting inside of Tom Emmer's office. And I think Elise Stefanik, who's the caucus chairwoman, has also been kind of involved in those talks as well. So I think Emmer's kind of been one of those who's been leading negotiations now. He could potentially be in a situation where he's negotiating getting his own votes to become speaker. Interesting. Wins by default, kind of, sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll have to see. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate your time. Hey, have a good one. Thank you. And, and I'm not bothered at all. I mean, may, maybe some of you out there are deeply concerned about the Republican Party in disarray. I think this is where, I mean, when you ask for a quasi-revolution, it gets bumpy. But I mean, this is part of the process. I mean, we are... Uh, do you really believe that transforming Washington had a playbook and everything goes as planned? Of course not. I mean, I knew this was going to be <laughs> interesting. I'll use that word, interesting, uh, alarming to some and concerning to others. But, I mean, this is this is what happens when, you know, you have a realignment in one of the major political parties. Let's go to the phone. I think Jeff's still there. Yeah, Jeff, you still there? Yes. Hey, uh, so, uh, well, um it was never going to be pretty, um, but uh, do I consider this ugly? No, I just I think that uh, this is the the thing that uh, Lindsey Graham warned uh, the Republicans about. I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I, I've never said this is going to be pretty. When, when you try to realign a, a political party from what it was to what the voters desire it to be, that there's going to be a lot of bumps in the road. And here we are. This is one of the big bumps in the road. I would imagine at some point in time they'll find a speaker and they'll get back to spending money they don't have. 
<laughs> yeah, it's um, uh, but the thing is, you do you think that Byron Donalds is is a viable? What's your opinion on that? I, I would let the caucus make that decision. I mean, my choice was Jordan because I think Jordan solidifies. It, Jordan accelerates the realignment. It's a confirmation. I mean, if Jordan could have got across the finish line, you, not only is Trump the front runner in the presidential, and I'm talking about the Republican primary by a mile, but now you've got a speaker that was endorsed by Trump, shares a lot of his America first dispositions. That would have been an accelerant. I mean, that would have really, but, 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 but I never expected Jordan to get enough. I mean, I really didn't. I, I never believed that he had the votes to become speaker. Yeah, I, I don't think he has the kid skill or capability to do that job, uh, let alone um, the uh, um, intellectual uh, honesty. Um, he's he's the flawed candidate. Let's just put it that way. But do you see this as affecting 24's House races as a, a big issue? I mean, you're putting Republicans in difficult positions by – forcing them to vote over and over and over again for people who you aren't sure if they're popular in your district or not. So, yes, I mean, I think this, I mean, if I'm an independent, if I'm a Republican Congress member from a swing or Biden district, the last thing I want is to vote again in a speaker's race. Yeah, it's it's quite shocking when you run on the premise that government doesn't work and you get elected, and then you prove that government doesn't work, it's, it's really not that surprising when you think about but, it. But, I mean, in all honesty, I think government's working as well today as it did when we had a speaker. Oh, really? Of course. Okay. What, what so, is different? So, what, what is different today in our world by not having a speaker? You, you, you don't see the um, support for the military. Now, keep in mind, how many days do we have left for the funding of the government? Uh, another month or so. November 25th, was it? 23rd? 20, whatever. Sometime around Thanksgiving. Yeah. And and you're going to be upset or the Republicans will be upset because they have to pass a resolution that they haven't been able to read or really bet. Or, you know, we'll just have to pass this, you know, omnibus bill because we're out of time again. And this is why. I mean, I, I, I just I, I don't see the alarm. I mean, I understand Rules have been, I mean, formalities have been broken and the, you know, the chain of command is not what it needs to be. They did these ominous bills when well, I mean, yeah, we, we had a speaker. We've not budgeted anyway. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 we've had a speaker in past Both parties. 20 years of omnibus bills and continuing resolutions. So, no, I'm not concerned at all about not having a speaker. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think we got a new normal, uh, and it's uh, one of the parties is dysfunctional. Well, I mean, I, no, I mean, I think one of the parties is probably going to win the White House, probably hold on to the House, may win the Senate. Uh, we'll find out. I think 24 will be a bright light shining on whether America First is growing up or not, and I don't know the answer to that. You don't know the answer to that. If Trump no. wins the presidency in 2020, and the Republicans con- or 24, and the Republicans control one chamber of Congress, wow. Wow. Really? You think you think that it would be you think that anything would be achieved? It's not that things are being achieved, it's that people are beginning to realize how broken things were. I mean it's not the achievement I'm after, it's the realization of how your government has defrauded you year after year after year after year. And Jeff, in the weirdest way, You've kind of gotten what you voted for. The majority of Democrats have gotten bigger government. 
and deficit spending. I mean, I, I don't know of a single Democrat that has ever put a mailer in the mail or ran a television ad saying, send me to Washington and I'll demonstrate fiscal restraint. Send me to Washington and I'll balance the budget. I mean, the, Demo- the Republican voters are the ones that have been lied to over and over yep. and over again. Well, so, you know, if you look at the cycles, uh, it, it looks like this. Republicans get elected. They don't cut spending. They cut taxes. And they run up deficits. A Democrat gets elected. They raise taxes, lower the deficit, and they don't cut spending either. What Democrat lowered the deficit? Uh, the last one that had a balanced budget. Yeah, 30, 30 years ago. Well, you tell me when the last time a Republican did it. Well, I mean, now you just said Democrats. I mean, did, did Obama lower the deficit? Eight years ago, Obama. What year did he lower the deficit? A- a- absolutely not. Four I, years I, of I Biden. Said. What year did he lower the deficit? Yeah. It was Clinton and Gingrich. Well, I mean, me it was Clinton and Gingrich. I mean, it was it was a bipartisan effort to balance the right. budget in 19, what, 98, 97, 96, somewhere thereabouts. Am I right? I mean, it was it was yeah, it was right absolutely. after Clinton said the era of big government is over. Yeah, right? yeah. But I mean, you, but Jeff, you so, said that Democrats raise taxes and lower the deficit, and the last twelve or last eleven years of Democrat presidents, cumulatively, Biden's raising the debt this year more than any president in human history. Uh, that you know, that's not true. It is true. <laughs> you you know that Donald Trump in four years. Spent 25% of the total U.S. I, I just said that this year will be the single largest deficit year in American history. We're at 1.7 like, right now. <laughs> you, but you, you act like the government doesn't spend more. No, I'm just stating a fact. I mean, am I, am I incorrect? I said the Democrats don't cut spending either. <laughs> but you said they bring <laughs> deficits down. They do bring that. No, they down. don't, Jeff. Okay. So you really need to look at historical charts. So you're arguing that in Barack Obama was president for eight years. How many you of those years, let, let me stick with me, how many of those eight years did he reduce the deficit? It fluctuated, but the deficit as a whole percentage. It didn't rise like it did under Trump. You got to you got to turn that television from MSNBC every now and then, Jeff. You, you got you got to venture into a world of um, contrarian opinion and somebody who may believe something a little bit different. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it, my man. He already listens to this show for some reason. Well, I mean, he you does. Think, you know. well, I mean, he knows we try to. I mean, I, I think the one thing Jeff knows we do is say what we believe, and we've never. I've never said, Josh. I don't want Jeff on the phone today. Uh, Josh Jeff makes too much sense. Josh Jeff, you know, he, he he makes our listeners angry and aggravated because we give him almost an extended time slot of his own. Uh, no, I mean, Jeff's, Jeff's welcomed here. Williams is welcomed here. Um, anybody else out there who disagrees with his host is welcomed here. Um, I mean, we have strong opinions. We know you do as well. That's why we give a phone number. But But I think some of us need to venture out of our own bubble Stop reading the Huffington Post and watching MSNBC and hear if there's an alternate opinion worthy of considering. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jim in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. So I think the Chinese Communist Party votes less in lockstep than the, the American Democrat Socialist Party. 
them voting in lockstep compared to the Republicans is something to be proud of. In a weird way, I'm kind of proud of what the Republicans are doing in this quote-unquote infighting because we're watching how our founders intended it, um, and we got a, a front-row seat to it. What we're experiencing is a good thing uh, because this is how our government is intended to work. Um, now, granted, would I have liked Jim Jordan? Absolutely. But um, this is how our government's intended to work. Um, and I don't think we were intended to have two uh, parties. Um, and maybe we're seeing the development of this third party within that maybe it's hopefully more than just a caucus, but m more of a party. But Jeff keeps talking about these taxes. We, guys, we don't pay taxes to fund the government. We pay taxes to control inflation. Um, to fund the government, the government just you know, borrows money from the Fed that the Fed just prints and then ships overseas to, to bomb little kids all over the world. So we would have to raise taxes from what we already have about $8,900 per 1040 filed each year. Who's got an extra 10 grand laying around to, to fund this? It would be disastrous to our economy. So if Jeff is insinuating that each taxpayer pay a, an additional 10 grand each year, we, we would tank our economy. Um, so, and then what, we spend a, what, extra 6% every year over year, Ken? Is that about right? Yeah, it's about that, 6.5%. So we're going to increase that additional 10 grand, not, not on top, that's on top of what we already pay, an additional 10 grand each year, and we're going to increase that by 6% every year. It's unsustainable. So this idea that we can, that tax cuts, um, cut revenue from the government, and then the government um, leads to deficit spending. Well, we would have deficit spending anyway. It's time to cut spending. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Well, I mean, we're, we're going to cut spending at some point in time. I mean, I don't know if it'll be forced, if it'll be, you know, and I want to go to Jim's earlier point because I've always believed this. Um, I think the best government is confrontational government. Do the Democrats have such good ideas that nobody ever considers voting against them? I mean, when a Democrat like Pelosi or Biden or Schumer come up with an idea and every Democrat votes in lockstep, is that good government? I mean, that's, that's what a lot of liberals will suggest. You know, the, um, the Republicans are in chaos. They can't agree on anything. I mean, isn't that government? I mean, out of that, don't you have yeah. better ideas? I mean, do the Democrats have such good ideas about self-governance that nobody votes against it? Every Democrat, I mean, we accuse the Democrats of circling the wagons. They do it better than the Republicans. But are you suggesting that out of that comes good government, better government, sound policy, uh, a proper way to, to fund and run a government? Really? So, so, so somebody named Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or Joe Biden says, hey, this is the way we're going, and everybody else, Everybody else with a D beside their name goes, okay, it's good government. I don't, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be an outcast. I, I don't want to dissent. I, I don't, I don't want to be, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a troublemaker. I mean, Schumer's been here a long time and Pelosi's been here a long time and Biden's been here even longer than both. I mean, and if they say it, it must be true. So just count me in. I mean, I'm one. I mean, really, is that what, I mean, is that the argument Democrats make for good government? 
the Republicans have this controversial caucus, these the, the, the Freedom Caucus and the Back Row Boys and the Bag Extremist and the America Firsters and the Non-Interventionist. And over here, we got the Democrats. And what do they do? All do the same thing. Exactly when they're told. Why? Because that's good government. I mean, we're in unison. We're united. There's a unanimous opinion of the Democrats that this is the best way um, to go. The absurdity of that. I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, try to be intellectual for just a second. Hard for me, probably easy for you. But try to be intellectual for just a second. That there, there's, there's several hundred people. And three decide <laughs> that this is in the country's best interest. And everybody with a D beside their name goes, I'm in. Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm good. Um, that, that, the absurdity of that. Do you know how complicated it is to govern this big-ass country? That's how you get terrible ideas. Sure it is. You get no and, and ideas. And a mismanaged country. I mean, it's, it's void of ideas. But, but you know, uh, Schumer, Pelosi, and the Republicans are guilty of this. That they're just now finding out that everybody's not willing to play ball. We've had this disruption, this realignment in the Republican Party, and it's healthy. It's 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 vigorous. It's going to be good for government at the end of the day. But but the other argument is one of the political parties is in lock. They're like the geese flying north or flying south. You know what I mean? One one flies in this they fly in this order, and then one kind of um he circles out and takes the lead because it's less on his wing stress and his fatigue, and they can fly, you know, hundreds of miles if they'll stay in formation. Okay? What is the old saying, monkey see, monkey do? I mean, that's kind of the way Democrats roll. And and they they, they pledge this unabashed loyalty. That, that This just, I'm with you through thick and thin. Well, I mean, it's pretty thin right now, to be honest with you. When you look at the coffers, and I think, you know, to, to it's just, it's unusual to me. And it really goes back to this elite college to media pipeline that I said this morning. Um, whether it's true or not, a certain percentage of Americans who want to believe it's true can convince themselves. 25% of Americans still believe that some gay black guy named Justice Smollett got accosted by, you know, MAGA hat wearing white guys in sub freezing temperature with rope in their hand in Chicago. Now, now Dave Chappelle says, you know why the African American community didn't have an outcry? Because we knew the brother was lying. We never believed that <laughs> for a second. But the the, the elite, I'll, I'll tell you this, and then we'll take our our next break and a call. The elite liberal media are so disappointed that Israel didn't bomb that hospital. I believe that with every fiber of my being. The elite liberal media are so upset and disappointed that Israel didn't bomb innocent people in a civilian hospital in Gaza. That was the story. That was the narrative. That was where they uh, were leading to. Look at the the, the anti-Israel protest. I didn't say anti-Jew. Anti-Israel protest on these college campuses all over the country. The majority of our elite colleges. That that's kind of, and I'm telling you, these elite colleges are, are are providing the workforce with people who create the narrative and people who administer government, and that is dangerous when it becomes that monolithic. They try to create a narrative. They make the news. They don't report the news. They try and make the news. They don't tell you how the world is. They tell you how they wish the world were. 
and every Democrat, I guess, is gullible, um, you know, naive. I don't, I don't know what motivates them to be so united and unanimously consenting of whatever Pelosi, Schumer, Biden, Obama, whomever um, says, hey, we're going this way. Okay. Count me in. Just don't run anybody against me. You know, I live in this competitive district, and I, I, don't, I don't need one of those, you know, MAGA guys, one of those extremist MAGA guys running or MAGA ladies running against me. Let's take a break. I like your impersonation about of the way Democrats talk. Well, yeah. Okay. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Hey, it's it, it's fun to lend and spend money you don't have. Uh, I was thinking about, there was a movie back in Vancouver called Fletch, and they were like, uh, put it to the under hills tab. And the United States of America is going to be under the hill soon. Uh, hey, real quick, uh, I was thinking about that true orange bowl in the name Miami and Clemson. I think about Randy Cato, my man. He loves Miami. And, uh, Ken, when you was out there at that hospital, did anybody say, was there any men that gave birth to a baby? We checked on that every second on the hour, <laughs> and we never found a male that gave birth to a um, to an infant. Okay. Well, hey, uh, here's here's a couple of little terms I heard from, from, from y'all is that kangaroo care, and that is hold that baby close, hold the baby close, and – what is our energy policy? I'm going to use the fancy term, energy portfolio. We need to hold that baby close. And we had it. We had it, Ken, but the sad part about it. And then I think uh, I'm going to use this term. If you ever want to uh, uh, listen to a man talk, the word dog, I think, Ken, me and you say it kind of like dog. But uh, I tell you what, man, this inflation, this interest rates, What's going on in the world? Uh, I, I I believe I need me a comfort dog. So it's sad. I mean, it, it's just the energy policy that this Biden administration's had. They don't understand what they have done to this country with these uh, electric cars and this and that. And they need to get to the root cause of where electricity comes from. I mean, it's sad. But anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. And that goes back. I mean, I've argued this pretty aggressively. When you live, when you believe that the majority of your life is, is a simulator, in other words, you know, I'm learning to be an airplane pilot, and I get in a flight simulator, and I goof it up. I didn't wreck an aircraft. I just goofed up the simulation. I mean, I get to run another program. I, I didn't put the landing gear down quick enough. I didn't turn the thrusters in back. You know what I mean? I mean, there, there's a, but, but we, we get out, we, we talk about it. You know, the instructor says, man, here's where you screwed up. Here's where you goofed up. Here's where we, we crashed a plane. We didn't crash a plane. It's almost like these people in Washington have escaped reality. And, and you know, two and two equals four on this side of the Potomac. But, but on the other side, it really doesn't. Because we've got this ingenious ways of, of, of making things appear not to be as they really are. And that's about the only bipartisanship we've had in the last generation of American politics. I mean, there's been, uh, you know, a consensus to spend money we don't have. And, and I, for some reason, and I guess we're kicking off the, um, the week after the, the Radiothon, uh, for some reason, it seems to me, and, and I'm reading CNBC and Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, 
I mean, that's where I get a lot of my opinions about uh, the economy. Uh, you know, and I don't trust what CNBC says. I don't trust what Bloomberg or, or, or Wall Street Journal. I mean, they, they have uh, intent and motives just like everybody else does. But, but it seems to me there's a more intense attention being paid to the debt. And when you look at some of the realities, quantitative easing and tightening and, uh, you know, inflation and deflation and uh, the debt cycle and the debt bubble, uh, it, there's just a lot more conversation about that. And, and we always felt, Rev, that there was some number. I mean, you, you and I, I mean, I'm not an economist. You're not an economist. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't understand. I can't mastermind, you know, the recovery. I can't mastermind how to get our debt under, under control. But, but I've always said you can't, I mean, you can't escape reality but for so long. I mean, you can crash in a simulator and crash in a simulator and crash in a simulator, but sooner or later, you got to get in that real plane. And you got to either learn to fly it or not. And when that plane lands on the side of a mountain, and people die, it's not a simulation anymore. It's the real McCoy. And, and I just think we have allowed some of these government officials, and I'm talking about elected and non-elected, to believe that reality doesn't apply. They live in this bubble. We've heard inside the beltway, inside the belly of the beast, inside the bubble, so to speak. Well, I mean, it's still, I mean, there's still realities. Josh asked me a couple of weeks ago, doesn't remember. Uh, well, he probably does. Is math a science or a discovery? What, what, what was it you asked me, Josh? It was kind of interesting the way you, 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 I don't know, you asked a question in kind of a provocative way. I asked, did we invent math or did we discover it? And I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have any idea. Here's what I know. Um, whether they say it the same way or not, um, the thrust of an airplane that weighs X number of pounds combined with the propulsion of X number of horsepower is going to, you know, create lift, right? I mean, you know, I don't know if the ancient Egyptians thought that before. You know where I'm headed? Before an airplane ever took off, I mean, i got to believe that we began to understand lift and propulsion and aerodynamics and all these other um, sorts of things. But, but physics apply everywhere. I mean, the rules of physics are going to apply at some point in time unless, unless we are the chosen people and the new covenant is real and, you know, the math doesn't apply. Maybe that's part of the new covenant. Two plus two doesn't equal four in this in this new covenant world. I mean, I don't buy that, but maybe some of maybe um, some of you do. But but as I prepare for this show, and I try to read, um, you know, the the National Review and the American Conservative and Salon and Huffington Post and MSNBC and CNN and Fox News and Zero. But but when I want to know about the economy, I mean, I go to CNBC and Bloomberg and and I go to the Wall Street Journal and I go to um, Barron's and I go to, you know, um, Forbes and I go to, and it seems to me that there are people now saying things that five years ago would have been controversial and, and a little bit scary, a little bit, you know, like, wow, okay, did he really just say that? I mean, he works at J.P. Morgan. He's not an editor for Zero Hedge. I mean, that guy <laughs> works at J.P. Morgan. Did J.P. Morgan let him say that? Because that's pretty scary what he just said. And I think, once again, people are beginning to realize that we, you can't land the plane in a flight simulator. We've gotten ourselves in a real plane, and the plane has real damage, and we've got to try to land it somewhere. And I think the longer we wait, the more we've got to thread the needle, and the more likely it is the crash kills us all. 
I mean, it does generational damage to our economy because of, of our financial irresponsibility. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Chesterfield. Hi, Jim. You're on. Yes. Uh, you just got through with a uh, – uh, a, uh, uh, whatever you call that thing about uh, your children's hospital and so on last week. But I was going to ask you, uh, who started the first hospital in uh, English-speaking uh, Anglican uh, people? Uh... I don't know. Well, I do, because he saw it uh the free will offerings of the 25th and the 35th chapters of uh, the book of Exodus. It was his name was Alfred the Great, and out of his own pocket, uh, and not by taxing or stealing from other people of his kingdom that he had been elected to be king of, he did so and, and started the first hospital. Who started the first uh, education facility uh, and did so out of his own pocket? Alfred the Great, the only king of England that uh, even Sir Winston Churchill acknowledged in his book on the island race that uh, would only be the only man that ever called the Great as as a uh, elected king. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back on the other side with some Pepsi of Florence. Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Okay, every now and then we need a layup, right? Need an easy. A fastball <laughs> right down the middle of the plate to use the football. You need a Jacksonville State if you're a Gamecock <laughs> fan, right? I better be careful. Better be real yeah, careful come on. <laughs> in saying that. But anyway, thanks to Pepsi of Florence. Um, they stick with us and have through thick and thin um, they've been with us since about day one, and we came up with this um, Monday and Friday trivia contest that you guys have been uh, supportive of and participatory of. Um, some questions are hard. Some are easy. Uh, in the spirit of getting back to work on a Monday after raising money for a children's hospital, once again, thanks to all of you who chose to participate and donate. We broke our own record. We did. I think we raised a little better than 144 thousand dollars for the children at the McLeod Children's Hospital um, and as a kind of a um, a celebratory moment of wake up Carolina we're going to do an easy trivia question today so get ready you first caller we're ready six pack of Pepsi product couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's t-shirts courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence what two colors are on the flag of Israel what two colors are on the flag of of Israel. 843-661-0937 is our number. I didn't ask how to fix the debt or how to stop deficit spending. I asked you what two colors are on the flag of Israel. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Yes, I do. Bob from Florence. It's blue and white. You were right, Bob from Florence. Um, I would say, who is this? But you already told me who <laughs> you this You already is. told us. Bob from Florence. <laughs> we'll get you back to Josh. Josh will get all your pertinent information and we'll get you your six-pack of Pepsi product a couple of takes Mondays uh, to make Friday's T-shirt. Yeah, blue and white. I've seen a lot of that in screenshots and screensavers and whatnot. Um, it, it's kind of a complicated matter. I mean, it really is much more complicated for me 
because of my biblical worldview and because of what I've been taught to believe and studied to be true. And I'm talking about the God of Abraham and King David and the Holy Land and Jerusalem and, you know, the, the pro-Israel sentiment of uh, the majority of Americans. It's kind of easy for me to say, eh, you know, the, the, the butchering in Ukraine is somebody else's problem. I mean, that's pretty lousy. And, and, and I don't know, a lack of humanitarian in me to say that. But, um, but, and I have no idea where we end up here. I mean, I honestly and truly have no idea where this war goes. Um, but Israel has a right to defend themselves. And when someone said what happened several weeks ago was Israel's 9-11, I just disagree with that. I think it was Israel's as close to the Holocaust and genocide as we've seen um, in a long, long time. I mean, it was barbaric. It was terrorism personified, but it was a little different than flying planes into buildings. I mean, it was dismembering innocent women and children uh, and videoing some of the murdering and the dismembering of innocent women and children. That's not 9-11 to me. I mean, that is more like the Holocaust. And you got to be careful comparing anything to Hitler but I think that may be somewhat appropriate. Enjoy your Monday, and we'll talk tomorrow.